Draco Malfoy and the Mortifying Ordeal of Being in Love. Written by Is This Self-Care. Read by S.E.P. Summary Hermione straddles the muggle and magical worlds as a medical researcher and healer about to make a big discovery. Draco is an Auror assigned to protect her from forces unknown. To both of their displeasure. Features hypercompetent and fiery Hermione and lazy yet dangerous Draco. Slow burn. Author notes. This is a story that I wanted to read but that didn't quite seem to exist yet. And so I had to be the change I wished to see in the world. Canon has been unapologetically picked over for the good bits. Call it Canon Divergent. Tonally, we are looking at low-stakes humor with occasional serious moments. My writing is inspired by, and looks breathtakingly jejune next to, the works of Jerome K. Jerome, P.G. Wodehouse, Saki, Dickens, Thackeray, and of course, the inimitable Jane Austen. There will be no filler content of the HP Ensemble cast. My focus is putting H and D in strange situations and seeing who murders who first. Chapter 1. An Unsporting Attack As a man of means, Draco Malfoy could have chosen to live a life of leisure, political meddling, and casual blackmail, like his father before him. However, his acquittal by the Wizengamot was accompanied by strong recommendations that young Mr. Malfoy strive for such laudable pursuits as the common good, altruism, and redemption in the public eye. And so, after a few years of sowing his wild oats, and a great many curses, on the continent, Draco had returned to London where he made short work of the aura training program, three years down to one and a half, if you please, and joined that noble office. Draco had been strategic in his choice of career, of course. Being an aura offered just enough heroics for positive coverage in the news, and just enough ministry-sanctioned murders to keep him interested in the job. Draco was an excellent aura. Something about very nearly becoming a dark wizard himself gave him rather useful insights into the minds of naughty wizards and witches. The problem with competence, however, was that it was rewarded with increasingly complex cases by the head of the Auror office, a certain Madame Nymphadora Tonks. And so, our opening scene, a Monday morning sometime in January, amidst the graying cubicles of the Auror office. Tonks was doling out the month's Class A assignments to her top Aurors like a vindictive Father Christmas. Montjoy, you're off to Heathpool. Three muggle children found dead and their livers removed. That hag coven from Stowe may have regrouped. A folder containing the case material was slapped onto Montjoy's desk. Buckley, suspected necromancy and other foul play, Isle of Man. Buckley accepted the proffered case file with a grimace. You're to take Humphreys with you. Mind you be a good mentor and don't traumatize her too much. Tonks rounded the corner to the next cubicles. Potter, Weasley. You're to continue with the vampires and dales, but if you don't make further headway, I will get personally involved. Half of Yorkshire will be sucked dry at this rate. Gogan, some idiot, is experimenting with transmogrification torture on muggle prostitutes in Glenluce. I won't notice if you bring him in with a few missing appendages. Tonks now came in to a halt in front of Draco's desk. Malfoy, since you did so well with the Lanark lunatic last week, I'll let you pick your poison. Draco eyed Tonks guardedly. Poison was unlikely to be an exaggeration. What are my options? Tonks dropped two files onto Draco's desk. Option one, a wizard accused of inappropriate acts with trolls. A real delight for the senses, that one. Or option two, a request from the minister for aura protection of a high-profile target. Inappropriate acts, repeated Draco, pulling the folder towards himself. I don't know about your tolerance level, but I've quite lost my appetite. <laughs> 
Tonks strutted her chin towards the rightmost folder. There are photographs for your edification. Draco made the mistake of opening the troll folder. He closed it again with a strangled sound of disgust. I'll take the protection assignment. Right-o, said Tonks, swiping the troll folder and its hideous contents from Draco's desk. The troll buggerer will go to Fernsby. Fernsby, come here. Fernsby emerged from a distant cubicle. Tonks slapped the folder into his chest. You are off to Morpeth. I hear the North Sea is lovely this time of year. If Fernsby had reservations about the loveliness of January sojourned by the North Sea, he kept it to himself. Tonks was rarely worth arguing with. Progress reports on my desk by Monday morning, called Tonks to the office at large. A grumble of assent from the oars followed the request. Tonks gave Draco a sharp look. Looking forward to yours, Malfoy. I have a degree of curiosity about that one. The Target is working on some top-secret project. They won't even tell me what it's about. Tonks made her way back to the office, managing to tread on an unsuspecting colleague's foot only once. Draco, now rather curious, pulled the folder towards himself. The protection request came straight from the minister's office, and Shacklebolt had requested a security audit, defensive warding, every confidentiality enhancing, measure known to wizard kind, escorting, if you please, and protective surveillance, and some the bloody works. Draco was preemptively irritated. This sounded rather like a lot of effort. And who, pray, merited this extravagant treatment? He flipped over a few more pages of ministerial demands to find, finally, the principal. And it was Hermione Bloody Granger. Her photograph was pinned to the top of a brief biographical note, as though anyone alive today didn't know her and her hair. She looked seriously at Draco, blinked at him once, and then left the frame. Draco seized the folder and headed for Tonks' office. She was rarely worth arguing with, but this case file merited an especial attempt. Tonks, I cannot take this one. You'll have to give it to someone else. Tonks looked up from the parchment she'd been attacking with a quill. Her hand turned quizzically mauve. Why ever not? It's Granger. That's the principal. Hadn't you seen? And? We don't exactly get along, said Draco in a vast understatement. Are you telling me that some school-time unpleasantness from 15 years ago will interfere with your ability to carry out this assignment? said Tonks. In the faux glass behind her, shadowy silhouettes clustered about as though keen to eavesdrop on the drama. We have a rather unhappy history, said Draco. Worse than you and Potter? This Draco considered for a moment. Finally, he answered, in some ways. Fine, said Tonks. Swap with Fernsby. I'm sure he'll only be too happy to change out a cushy protection job for the troll aficionado. Isn't there anything else I can take? Tonks gave him a quelling look, emphasized by her eyes turning a dangerous, hawkish kind of yellow. I've just assigned this month's missions, Malfoy, and I won't have you complex. Your complex about Granger domino its way through the entirety of it. I don't have a complex about Granger. Good, then you'll do fine. Off you go. Tonks waved her hand and the door closed slowly, squeezing Draco out. Draco strode back to his desk, half intended to ask Fernsby for the swap. However, the gurgle of horror emanating from Fernsby's cubicle was sufficient to change his mind. Fine. He'd do the Granger thing. It was, at any rate, not troll pornography. Draco sent Granger a cold, professional note stating that he would be pleased to meet with her at her earliest convenience to discuss the minister's protection request. Granger sent back an equally cold note indicating that the minister's request was an overblown reaction on the minister's part, and that she would be dealing with it shortly, and to please disregard it. 
Draco did not respond, but enjoyed an afternoon off instead of informing Tonks of this fortunate development immediately. Then Granger ruined everything by writing again, indicating that, to her disappointment, the minister had not changed his mind, and was forging ahead with this disproportionate and illogical, in her opinion, plan of action. Would Draco be available to meet at 9 o'clock this Thursday? The Granger Laboratory, Trinity College, Cambridge. As he tossed the missive into the fire, Draco thought, Cambridge, of course. How could we expect anything less from Hermione Granger? That Thursday, Draco arrived at Trinity College at the beastly hour of nine o'clock. The porter at the gate didn't glance twice at his robes. Many of the muggles wandering about were wearing long black gowns, but he did give Draco a sharp look when he said he was there to see Granger. Dr. Granger, said the porter. Have you got an appointment, sir? Yes. Name? Malfoy, said Draco. The porter consulted a chart. He found whatever he was looking for, apparently because Draco was waved in towards the verdant quad of Trinity College. It's not a quad. We call them courts at Cambridge, said the porter to some tourists. But Draco paid him no mind. He knew a quad when he saw one. Granger's note had included a few directions on how to enter the wizarding part of the college, which brought Draco to a magically concealed door at the south end of the quad. A muggle plaque indicated that King's Hall had once stood here but that it had been destroyed in the 16th century. Draco tapped the bronze plaque with his wand, as instructed by Granger, and the ostensibly destroyed King's Hall appeared before him. Draco decided that Granger earned a 2 out of 10 in his initial security assessment. At least rogue muggles wouldn't immediately be able to find her. And with that generous thought, he strode into magical Cambridge. At 9 o'clock on a weekday, King's Hall was a roiling bustle of scholarly witches and wizards, off to advance magical knowledge. Draco had spent years at the Université de Paris to earn his bachelor's in alchemy and his mastery in martial magic, dueling. But he never set foot in an institution of higher learning in the UK. King's Hall retained its 16th century ambiance, dark and excess of overcarved wood and candlelight, and vacillated somewhere between pure Gothic and early Renaissance in decor. As he surveyed the crowd before him, varyingly studious or eccentric-looking. Draco wondered how much of Wizarding Britain's brain power was located within these hallowed halls. At any rate, there was at least one big brain on the premises. Quite lost, amongst five staircases on the first floor, he decided to inquire for directions towards that brain. You, there, said Draco, jutting his chin towards a spotty youth. The boy looked about twenty-two, serious, and clutched a text on advanced theoretical arithmancy to his chest. Yes? asked the loop asked the youth. I'm looking for Granger, said Draco. The boy frowned at him. Professor Granger? Our offices are on the third floor, with the other fellows. Cheers, said Draco, wondering how many more times he was going to be corrected regarding precious Granger's title today. He climbed the stairs and passed corridors where he spotted a variety of interesting things. Classrooms, lounge rooms, reading rooms, offices, an apothecary, a cafe, and what appeared to be a small zoo. Finally, he came to a door which simply said, Granger, ring for attention. See, there, no overzealous titles. Draco rang for attention. Then he peered into the narrow window that flanked the door and almost turned around to leave again because the laboratory beyond seemed decidedly muggle and he must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. Only it did say Granger right there. His ring was answered by a being in a bright white coat and strange translucent face coverings. Can I help you? asked the being. I'm looking for Granger, answered Draco. 
Healer Granger doesn't take walk-ins, said the being, with a rather stiffened back. Is she expecting you? She is, said Draco, adding this new title to the increasingly ridiculous running list. All right, said the being, with what probably a suspicious look. But Draco couldn't tell behind the goggle things. Her office is down to the right. The being moved out of the way. From the voice, Draco was now relatively certain it was a human female. But the accoutrements made it difficult to say. In any case, Draco was in. His initial assessment of Granger's security measures plummeted to a strong one out of ten. It pleased him to give Granger a well-deserved horrid mark. It didn't please him to think of the work that would be involved bringing this place up to snuff. He knocked on the office door. Come in, said Granger's voice, a blast from the past, crispy, prissy, and impatient. Draco entered the office. Granger was sitting behind a tidy, if overstacked, desk. They stared at one another in a decidedly awkward moment, something that Draco, now a fully qualified and rather dangerous or, was not used to anymore. And perhaps, judging by the unhappy set of her mouth, neither was Granger. Time heals all wounds, but between himself and Granger, there were a great many to heal. And right now, fifteen years felt like a rather short time since they'd been children, fighting each other op on opposite sides of a war. Draco couldn't recall when he had last spoken to her directly, and he certainly knew he had never been alone in a room with her. Granger rose to greet him with the following display of eloquence. Malfoy. Granger, said Draco with equal eloquence. She gestured to her chair across the desk. As he stepped towards it, Draco found himself being assessed by her. Her gaze flitted from his hair to his face, to the oar insignia on his chest, and down his black robes to his boots. Seeing that they were dispensing with the niceties, Draco shamelessly assessed her in return. The hair, a curling pile, coiled top high on her crown. The face, thinner, more severe than he remembered. The same strange white cloak as the being. The black jeans, so muggle. The casual trainers. Draco opened his mouth to make a few vague opening remarks, some chatter about Cambridge or Potter or Weasley or some other such fluff. But Granger jumped straight to the point. This is absolutely a waste of aura resources. The lack of finesse was quite typey for Granger. Some things didn't change. Draco settled himself back in his chair. Give me a bit more to go on and I can make a case to Shacklebolt to withdraw his request. I have no more desire to be here than you. Granger pursed her lips at him. Draco wondered when McGonagall had apparated into Granger's chair, and where Granger had got to. All right, said Granger at length. A fortnight ago, I updated Shacklebolt on the progress of a certain research project. A research project that is not under the Ministry's purview, nor funded by it, by the by. I was sharing what I thought was a bit of good news with a longtime friend and mentor, who happens to be the Minister of Magic. Apparently, the news was too good. Shacklebolt fears repercussions, and the projects will have implications for a certain segment of the population. What implications? asked Draco. Which segment? I'd rather not say, as my hope is that you won't be involved any further than this meeting. Shacklebolt is overreacting. I shall speak with him again this week and convince him that putting me under aura surveillance is utterly unnecessary. Aura protection, corrected Draco. Auras of his caliber were not assigned to two-bit surveillance jobs, thank you. Call it what you will, said Granger. Shacklebolt has his flaws, but a propensity for overreaction isn't one of them, said Draco. There wasn't much love lost between himself and the minister, but there was a certain respect. No, it isn't in one of his propensities, which is why I rather 
surprised, dismayed, really, by his decision to involve your office. Is it possible that he isn't overreacting? The look Granger leveled at him was decidedly unfriendly. No. You don't think that this breakthrough or discovery of yours is putting you at any new risk whatsoever? Not at the moment. First, no one knows about this development other than Shacklebolt himself, and to a varying degree, my staff, all of whom I trust implicitly. And secondly, though I've made a breakthrough, I haven't quite solved the issue yet. That will be a work of at least another year. I won't be on the front page of the Prophet asking to be murdered tomorrow. Draco's eyes twitched upwards. Shacklebolt thinks you're going to be murdered? He thinks, probably rightly, that some people won't be pleased about my breakthrough. Draco decided that he needed to speak to Shacklebolt. Perhaps he'd be less cagey than Granger and disclose something useful to the aura assigned to her. He found himself truly curious now about the nature of this good discovery. His next question was carefully phrased. He didn't want to cast aspersions on Granger's heritage. Gods forbid he was already on thin ice everywhere on that front. But there were things she mightn't know. As a muggle-born... Might Shacklebort be aware of certain wizarding predilections or biases that you aren't that would be cause for concern? Granger took a breath, as one might if she was summoning one's remaining patience. If I told you I'd solved world famine or something equally wonderful, would you pause to worry about the actions of a few naysayers? One naysayer would be enough to dispatch a do-gooding researcher, especially one who keeps her laboratory secured with a third-rate locking charm and some chicken wire. One of Granger's knees began to bounce. It brought to mind a cat twitching its tail in annoyance. So have you? asked Draco. Have I what? Solved world famine? Nothing so grand. That was an example. Where do you keep your findings? asked Draco. Now it was Granger's turn to raise an eyebrow, which was the entirety of her response. Draco gestured to the office around him and the laboratory on the other side of the door. I've identified a dozen vulnerabilities already, and that's only what I saw in the five minutes it took to walk up here. If I wanted to work it out, I'd rather think I could. Do you? Yes. Seeing Granger smirk was... something. However, it rapidly disappeared. If we're talking of physical security, I haven't exactly had a reason to increase it beyond the usual measures until recently. I can assure you that I'm capable of warding my laboratory beyond a locking charm, and keeping my data safe. Perfect, said Draco. Proceed with that. I'll be back in a few days to do a penetration test. If you satisfy that, and implement any additional measures I recommend, we may be able to convince Shacklebolt that you and your research are safe, and we'll be able to put this behind us. This challenge was doled out with a, quite laudable, Draco thought, minimum of arrogance on his part. Granger's eyes grew hard. The challenge was recognized and accepted. Fine. And when will this penetration taste take place? I'm not giving you warning, said Draco, rising. Do you think a real-world threat would? Brilliant, said Granger, rising too. Sarcasm roughened the edge of her words. I do love surprises. They did not shake hands, and she did not see him out. Draco scheduled a visit with the Minister of Magic later that week. He sauntered past the Minister's sour-faced assistant on the designated day, wondering who had pissed in her pixie puffs. Shacklebolt was as reticent with the details as Granger had been but impressed upon Draco the importance of keeping Granger safe to complete her project for the benefit of all wizard kind. It was all very grand and extremely vague. The only positive was Shacklebolt's evident pleasure that it was Draco who had ended up with the assignment. 
I know you won't hesitate to get nasty, Malfoy, if any malicious individuals were to make a move against her. Draco accepted the backhanded compliment with a mock bow. You're warming the cockles of my heart, minister. Shacklebolt returned the bow with an inclination of his head. Then he grew somber. She could change the lives of hundreds, thousands for the better. And yet neither she nor you will tell me what the project entails. Did she make you take a bloody vow of secrecy before disclosing anything? Shacklebolt raised his hands, not responding one way or the other. And thus Draco gave his answer. She would have the foresight, said Draco, throwing a fistful of flu powder into Shacklebolt's fireplace. Cambridge. This was it. He'd given her long enough to prepare. It was late on Monday evening. King's Hall was quiet. Draco supposed that Granger was off having dinner or browbeating innocent undergraduates. He stood at the back door of her laboratory, tapping his wand to his chin thoughtfully. However, before he had cast any kind of revelation charm or begun any sort of snooping, Granger rounded the corner. Malfoy, she said, looking a little disheveled and out of breath. Draco filed her timely arrival away for future analysis. She was too clever for it to be a coincidence, and yet she hadn't cast a single spell that would have made his presence known. Granger had forsaken her muggle clothing for green healer robes. She looked both irritable and impatient, and quickly confirmed both of those conditions by asking, Time for your vaunted test, is it? How long will this take? Draco did not appreciate her tone, which suggested that this might be an affair of several hours. That depends on your warding. I'm thinking a quarter of an hour at the upper end. Granger's eyes rose to the cockiness of his rejoinder. Good. Just did a shift at A&E, and I'm positively knackered. She waved her wand, and with a rather impressive display of transfiguration, not that Draco gave any sign that he was impressed, she transformed one of her hairpins into a glossy wooden chair, upon which she perched herself to observe him. Draco didn't mind an audience, especially when he was going to systematically dismantle the audience's attempt to keep him out and teach her some humility. Draco turned his attention back to the door. A&E, I thought you were a researcher. The MNHS is chronically understaffed. It takes shifts at St. Mungo's to help out. Keeps my healing skills sharp. Good of you. Hmm. After a few revelation spells, Draco had to hand it to Granger. She'd done her homework. Not a surprise, really. The protective enchantments that now warded the door to her laboratory were many, quite complex, and well cast. Draco got to work, but not without taking the piss just a little. Caterwauling charm? Insulting. I've learned to work from the lowest common denominator up, was the dry response. The basic intruder charms that followed were dismissed with a few wand waves. The salvio hexia was a good warm-up. Then Draco got into the good stuff. Foribus ignis, custus porte, and a hair-trigger confundus, aimed directly at his head, revealed only when he peeled away the other two wards. A sneaky blinding hex that just seemed mean, a balding jinx that was decidedly unsportsmanlike, and a concealed confringo on the door's handle itself for anyone stupid enough to touch it. Draco disarmed the latter, a little touch-and-go, admittedly, and he did break a sweat telling himself that at least if his face was blown off, there was a healer nearby who would be able to assist. The door unlocked. It had taken all of four minutes, and yet Granger looked unimpressed. Draco swung open the door to reveal a stone wall. Funny, said Draco. His face showed none of his disquiet, but he'd been wasting his time on an absolutely impeccable decoy. He waved his wand a meter further down the wall, and the real door to the laboratory appeared. Granger shrugged. I needed my staff to be able to get in. 
They aren't experts at disarming wards, but they can handle a finite incantatum. Draco entered the laboratory to continue his assessment, his neck rather stiff. His audience waved his, her chair back into a hairpin and followed. Normally, I would insist upon donning the proper PPE per Trinity's wet laboratory protocols, said Granger, but we've tidied for the day. I don't think you can hurt yourself on anything. Once again, Draco didn't care for her tone, which this time suggested that he might otherwise off himself by accident. He ignored the sterile white and steel surfaces that made up most of the space and moved to the shelves and cupboards at one end of the laboratory, which looked like a likely place for active laboratory sorted data. However, the well-organized contents were useless. It was mostly muggle scientific literature, including some of Granger's own publications. Words jumped out at Draco without meaning. Cytokines, monoclonal, antibodies, chimeric antigen receptors, T-cells. I realize the purpose of this test is to see how far you'd get and what you can discover about my research. But do put things back in an orderly fashion, came Granger's voice, irritation lacing her words. Draco, his back to her, permitted himself a healthy roll of his eyes. One text was half an inch out of place. He pushed it back in. He waved his wand at the entirety of the collection to uncover transfigurations or concealment spells, but there were none. Then he systematically did the same with the rest of the laboratory, seeking any hidey holes or caches, or, as he grew annoyed, any magical trace whatsoever. There was nothing magical except the contents of the various vials and test tubes clustered in tiny groups along the laboratory's workbench. If I stole these and had them analyzed, what would I discover? asked Draco. The glow of his spell illuminated the vials of interest. Granger walked towards them and pointed. Gamma Delta T cells, antigens, Mart 1, Tyrosinase, GP 100, Survivin, all of the magical provenance, which is why your spell is revealing them, but not otherwise noteworthy. I see, said Draco, who did not see at all. I don't know who your hypothetical analysis would be conducted by, but in the event that these were to be stolen to uncover what I'm working on, but I should tell you that very few people in the UK would be able to pull meaningful conclusions out of this. Draco felt the false modesty in her words. By very few, she meant none at all. I'm surrounded by idiots, and I'm the only one who can make sense of any of these horrifically named extracts. And those? asked Draco, pointing to larger, rather more familiar-looking vials along the back row. Your hypothetical analyst would discover perfectly brewed sanitatum. That's a healing potion, she added quite unnecessarily. I find of critical importance in the laboratory of a healer, said Draco, his annoyance lapsing into sarcasm. There was the tiniest quirk at the corner of Granger's mouth. Amusement, rapidly stifled. Draco was doing his stifling, but in this case, it was exasperation. She had wasted his time on a wild goose chase with either those door wards, knowing that there was nothing of real use in the laboratory itself, unless one was in possession of about twelve doctorates to put it all together. But she had to be recording findings. She was too methodological and meticulous not to. Now Draco turned to a corner of the laboratory that he'd ignored as a matter of course. It was the most mugglish area of the entire place, a corner desk cluttered with glowing boxes of light. Granger might as well have cast a notice-me-not on the lot. Had she? No, his detection spell showed nothing. That had been a feature of his own built-in habits. His eyes almost naturally averted themselves from the unmagical, the utterly mundane, the terribly muggle. He'd have to watch that, clearly a weakness. He walked towards the desk, and for the first time since Draco had entered the laboratory, Granger actually perked up and looked interested in the proceedings. 
Now he was getting somewhere. Computers, said Draco, pulling up some distant memory from Muggle studies. Well done, said Granger, with the tone of one who would take to praise an especially slow child, who had just correctly identified a barn animal. Draco favored her with a dark look. Her face was impassive, but her eyes betrayed her. She was curious about what he was going to do next. And, of course, he hadn't the faintest sodding clue where to go from here, other than jinxing the computers into submission. But from what he recalled, these devices weren't sentient. He stood before the glowing boxes, upon which slow lines were moving in random patterns. And I'd need to bring in a muggle-born, said Draco at length. Oh yes, that would be a start, said Granger. She looked at her nails. You'd want to find one who is a decent hacker, too. I'm not sure many of those exist, amongst wizard kind. But perhaps one or two in the UK? A hacker. Yes, said Granger, offering no further explanation of the violent term. If, as I suspect, your findings are in these things, what's to stop me, a baddie, from destroying the lot and stopping your research in its tracks? asked Draco. Granger shrugged. Wouldn't matter. It's all in the cloud. The cloud. Yes. I'd be out the cost of the equipment, that's all. So your bog-standard dark wizard up to no good wouldn't have much to discover here? I'm afraid not, said Granger. The wards at the door were an amusing puzzle. Thank you for wasting my time. I wanted to see if you're as good as they say. Draco gave her a quick look, wanting to know who they was, because he did like to hear how good he was. Granger did not indulge him. I had a few other ideas for other hexes and things, she said, gesturing to the door, but I hadn't the time. So, no evidence of concealment, no written findings, computers, clouds. Draco looked at Granger. If I'm a baddie who needs information, what do I do next? Granger looked at him, inquiringly. What do you do? I go after you, said Draco. He raised his wand a split second later. His spell hit her in the chest. Chapter 2. Draco Malfoy, Genius Inventor The Lumos dissipated harmlessly into Granger's robes, but her shock was nevertheless evident. That was unnecessary, she gasped, a hand at her chest. Draco made his way towards Granger's office with a bit of a saunter. I promise you other spells wouldn't be so friendly. No one's going to be casting unfriendly spells at me for no reason, said Granger, following him. They don't have a reason now, but if your big breakthrough is as significant as Shacklebolt thinks, and if, when, it gets out, then... He turned to her again, his wand raised. She was readier this time and spat out a Protego. Better, said Draco. How's your resistance to the Imperius curse? Granger grew still, her hand gripping her wand. If you cast that on me in my own laboratory, I shall drown you in sanitatum and enjoy the irony. Draco glanced above him. Every vial of sanitatum had levitated off the benches and was hovering over his head. In a real situation, he'd vanish the lot and blast Granger through two walls for the cheek. But nevertheless, it was an impressive bit of nonverbal magic. I'll concede that your research is more or less safe, physically, from most wizarding intruders, said Draco. The vial settled back into place, but it all lives in your head and can therefore be read, or tortured, out of you, or any of your staff. I'm the PI on the project in question. My staff consists of five undergrads and eight graduate students, whose combined understanding of the project is probably 15%, scattered through 13 minds. They aren't much of a vulnerability. Draco gave her a hard look. Then you're the vulnerability. She predictably looked offended. 
How's your occulency? said Draco. The question was accompanied, of course, by a friendly bit of legitimacy. Draco was granted a clear view of Granger's perception of him at that precise moment. Tall, arrogant, ponce with good hair, and then he was mentally slapped out of her mind. He pressed a finger to the center of his forehead. This witch was making his brain sting. Meanwhile, Granger looked like she wished to double down and slap him in the material world for good measure. And wouldn't that just be a lovely throwback to their school days? I thought we were assessing my laboratory, not me, said Granger, her eyes flashing to him. We're assessing risk exposures, said Draco. And it's quickly becoming obvious that you're significant one. Is your home warded? Moderately. I can enhance it. I'll enhance it, said Draco. How do you travel? Flu? Apparition? Those are trackable, you know. Broom? I detest flying, said Granger. Draco made a valiant effort not to curl his lip. What a terrible position to take. What a dreadful thing to hate. What a sad circumvention of one of the greatest joys of being magical. Granger fell in his esteem quite irredeemably. Since when is apparition trackable, other than the trace? asked Granger. Top secret, said Draco, now in Granger's office. He rifled through the various stacks of paperwork and books, encountering again nothing but the highly specialized, utterly incomprehensible muggle jargon, and no sign of recent developments, note-taking, record-keeping, or anything of the useful nature that might point him to the Granger's precious findings. There was another computer in the office, which Draco eyed with a resigned kind of vexation. How stupid to be flummoxed by a device that any muggle off the street could probably operate. Perhaps he should have kidnapped the porter at the gate and brought him in to assist, statute of secrecy notwithstanding. He stared at the computer intimidatingly, waiting for it to confess its sins, but it merely offered him wobbly lines. As Draco snooped, scanned, and searched for interesting magical giveaways in the rest of the office, Granger pulled off her healer robes and dropped into the chair that Draco had occupied upon his first visit. She let out a sigh of unadulterated fatigue. Draco glanced at her. Muggle clothing again, underneath. This time, a long-sleeved top and some trousers that barely merited the name. More like opaque black tights, really. Was this decent public attire by Muggle standards? Shocking. He could see the precise outline of her calf and the exact shape of her knee. He didn't spend too long musing upon the foibles of Muggle fashion, however, as the witch herself was a bit of a concern. He could see now how thin she was how her collarbone shadowed, and how her neck seemed too dainty to hold the mass of hair pinned upon her head. She was pale, peaky, and generally looked overdrawn. "'What's your schedule like, Granger?' Draco asked, as though continuing his query about the travel patterns, but really wanted to get a sense of what exactly this woman did with herself, day in and day out. Typically, Granger had a schedule ready, color-coded and planned to the hour. She waved her wand in the direction of her desk, and the schedule floated to Draco deposited itself into his hands. Using his wand as an erstwhile quill, Draco drew circles around the moments of exposure, when she'd move between places and be most vulnerable to attack. There were many. The woman was everywhere and did everything. She had dedicated laboratory hours, clinic hours, teaching hours, volunteering for a horrid amount of good causes, tutoring sessions, mentoring sessions, healing at St. Mungo's, and what sounded like a local muggle surgery. One pub night every fortnight with Potter and friends, college dinners, something called yoga at unholy hours in the morning, something called crooks vet that recurred every three months, and then occasional days here and there marked only with an asterisk. What are these? 
Draco asked, pointing at one of the blocks with an asterisk. Holidays, said Granger. Your occlumency might be passable, but your lying isn't. They're days off, Granger grew snippy. And I shan't be divulging any details in my personal life than I already have. Thank you. Draco dropped the subject, and the schedule, back onto her desk. Overdrawn wasn't even the right word for Granger. Exhausted or depleted, maybe. Draco recalled some vague rumor that young Granger had been granted a time-turner during their Hogwarts years to squeeze more classes into her school days. Potter and Weasley had quickly dismissed that bit of or lunch hour chat. Looking at the overzealous, overachieving, overtired witch before him, Draco found himself rather inclined to believe the tale. He continued his search, though he doubted there would be much else to find. The wall at the rear of the office was covered in frames of various sizes, certificates, diplomas, awards. Nice mosaic, said Draco. Granger gave him a look. Well, he found himself funny, even if Granger didn't. The mosaic informed Draco that Granger didn't quite have twelve docurates, but her combination of muggle and magical diplomas probably approached that number. Again, the muggle ones were a mystery, awarded by muggle universities he hadn't heard of. Bachelors in biomedical sciences, masters in microbiology and immunology, joint MD, PhD in oncology, some minor certificate in genetics. He recognized the healer seal, at least, Cambridge specializing in magical diseases. Her other magical certifications were a master's in transfiguration, Edinburgh with an earlier degree, just after the war, probably, and a specialized study in healing, blood magics from the Sorbonne. A smattering of other certificates and qualifications completed Granger's educational curve. A box on a low shelf revealed a few dusty older frames, the things he knew her for in her brilliant Hogwarts days. The record-breaking OWLs, the absurd amount of NEWTs, don't merit a place upon her wall of adult achievements. He spotted an order of Merlin first class. Potter had similar proudly hung upon his cubicle wall, but Granger hadn't eaten the room, apparently. Granger excused herself to make tea, and in a show of civility that appeared moderately challenging to verbalize, asked if he'd like a cup. Draco said no. Granger looked relieved. After she'd left, Draco, being a pragmatic and sneakish kind of person, took advantage of the moment to cast a few discreet tracking spells upon a handful of her personal items. The trainers under the desk, hairpins, alarmed things were everywhere, a half-finished mug of tea, he rifled through the paperwork on her desk and found nothing of interest. Conference invitations, muggle grant application results, notes from students, useless tat. The computer made a sound like a small ping. Draco turned to it. Its dark surface had wiggly lines had challenged him to touch and die of electric shocks. Then Draco gasped and said, Hang on! What? said Granger, who had just re-entered the room. This whole place is so muggleish that I hadn't even thought to ask. How are these computers working? We're in a magical building. Oh, that, said Granger. She made what Draco presumed was meant to be a casual shrug. It wasn't very casual. I found ways to circumvent the issue. How? Ways, said Granger. What ways, asked Draco. She stared at him as though assessing his worthiness for this knowledge. In the face of her open eye contact, Draco was sorely tempted to attempt legitimacy again. Just as the thought passed his mind, her eyes lost some of their sparkle. She was occluding. I found a solution, said Granger, with another vague gesture. I couldn't possibly work with only quills and parchment. That's positively archaic. 
not to mention the hundreds of thousands of calculations and projections I've needed to do. Anyway, you needn't preoccupy yourself with it. I can assure you that it's nothing dangerous. Draco stepped closer to the computer, observing the various gadgets connected to its periphery by long, smooth fibers. Only a few things weren't connected to the principal organ, as he named the glowing box part, including three smallish metallic pucks set around the thing. Rather, how one might set up a perimeter, really, to keep things in or out. He strode at the collection of computers in the laboratory proper. Granger followed him with a kind of polite curiosity. There, too, were the metallic pucks, six of them, this time creating a jagged circle. I'd be careful handling those, said Granger. Draco, whose hand had been hovering above one of the pucks, pulled back. It's not dangerous, but you won't like the feeling. She came beside him and held one up. I'm calling it an anti-magical force field, for lack of a better term. Rather challenging to create, but it serves my purposes. Draco stared at her. Blocking magic was a tricky bit of work. A thing mostly relegated to obtruse theoretical discussions. The handful of magic-inhibiting artifacts he'd heard of were things of distant legend, lost to the passage of time, and yet... I got the idea from a Wi-Fi hotspot in cafes and airports, only, of course, this is the contrary, said Granger. Then, seeing from his face that he explained nothing, she said, Never mind. I'm not entirely certain that those are legal, said Draco, looking at the pucks. Better report me to Shacklebolt, said Granger. Her eyes met his, unfriendly, unafraid. Draco decided that Granger had balls, possibly rivaling Tonks's enormous pair. The beginnings of a plan were germinating in his head. I need a copy of your schedule, he said, leading the way back to Granger's office. A quick duplicatus sorted that, paired with the protean charm to ensure that changes to her version would be reflected on his. Right, I shall prepare a tidy little report with some recommendations to ensure Healer Granger's continued safety and well-being, said Draco, scribbling out a few notes. I'm also going to see what I can do to reassure Shacklebolt that you're not going to be murdered tomorrow, and that I needn't be your minder on a daily basis. A relief for all parties, said Granger. Watch for my owl in a few days. Also, please stop giving him treacle tart. It makes him unruly. Understood, said Granger, looking only slightly abashed. Is the test over, then? Yes. Finally, said Granger. Then, because she was a normal, well-adjusted individual, she sat down at her desk to work some more. Draco saw that he had, for all intents and purposes, ceased to exist, and decided to show himself out without further ceremony. Mind the tile in the front of the door? Quicksand curse, said Granger absently. It was to catch the baddies on the way out. Saw it, Granger. Of course you did. A few exchanges with Shacklebolt ensued, during which Draco outlined his plan and convinced the minister that it was the correct approach, and that, moreover, no other approach would do because the principal would be too uncooperative. Draco studied Granger's schedule in quiet moments, puzzling over the asterisk holidays. His first thought was that the days were a personal indicator of some private thing. They were too scattered to be a reminder for her period. The pattern wasn't lunar, either. Good to know Granger wasn't a secret werewolf. Dates for some romantic entanglement, perhaps? Was that why she hadn't marked down details? Was he looking at Granger's sex schedule? Would she really take an entire day off? Draco felt that he ought to shake the hand of the man responsible. He also surreptitiously checked the day off request at the Aura's office, and neither the weasels nor Potterheads upcoming holidays coincided. The mystery endured. Draco spent a few days tinkering with the key element of his plan, 
and by tinkering we do mean, of course, mucking about with ancient magics best left untouched. Recommendations, said Draco, slapping a roll of parchment onto Granger's desk. Fairly standard stuff for fairly obvious vulnerabilities. I've run them past Shacklebolt. He's agreed to withdraw the protection request if you comply with them. Granger unrolled the parchment and found that it reached the floor. She gave him a slow blink. Anything you'd like to draw my particular attention to in the interest of saving time? Yes, said Draco. Item 56. Granger ran down the list to the line in question. The principal must agree to wear the ring at all times until completion of the project. That's the one, said Draco. What ring? said Granger. This one, said Draco, tossing a ring towards her. The small silver band landed on the parchment, spun once, and was still. I don't care to train you on imperious or veritaserum resistance, or personal protection magics, or advanced occulency, or drill you on the physical self-defense God forbids you look like your punches might concuss a gnat at best. And nor do I think you want to endure these things. Correct, said Granger, her suspicious look moving from the ring to Draco. Nor do I want to stand sentry at your door like some glorified bodyguard waiting for whatever Shacklebolt expects to happen to happen. Yes, said Granger with enthusiasm. Continue. So I presented Shacklebolt with this option, which will allow me to, in essence, be alerted if anything were to happen to you, and apparate to you instantly. I can find better uses for my time, and you can carry on with your distressingly full, by the way, schedule unimpeded. Draco waited to be praised for the simple elegance and the brilliant solution. Instead, Granger poked the ring with her wand. It isn't going to kill you, said Draco. Granger met his eyes seriously. My data set is admittedly rather small, but I saw the aftermath of the last piece of jewelry that Draco Malfoy handed out, and it was... alarming. You'll have to forgive me if I don't immediately put this on. I'd like to analyze it. Ah, uh, yes, the Katie Bell incident. If Draco had any feelings, they would have been a little hurt, probably, by this display of mistrust stemming from the actions of an idiot boy being manipulated by the darkest wizard of the century a decade and a half ago. But he didn't, so the point was moot. I'm happy to see that you've got some self-preservation instincts, said Draco. He swept his hand toward the ring. Analyze away. Granger cast a few revelation spells, which set the ring aglow with slow-rotating, translucent spellwork. So, what's all this? Telling you would rather spoil the fun, wouldn't it? You tell me, said Draco. And with that, he settled back into his chair into a relaxed pose. Now it was his turn to watch her unpuzzle a thing. She flicked through the spells with some adeptness, quickly picking out the more critical ones. Draco supposed that diagnostic magic would come easily to her as a healer. She listed her findings. A locator charm, miscellaneous protective runes. Thoughtful, thank you. A distress beacon, heart rate monitoring. Now her lips quirked. What's funny? asked Draco. You've invented a wizarding Fitbit. I beg your pardon? Unless he was misunderstanding, Granger was suggesting that his exceptional creation was a knockoff of a muggle thing. What? Never mind. What's this unfinished mess here? asked Granger, holding her wand points to a ghostly green knot of, arithmet of arithmetic calculations. Draco felt his nostrils pinch. That unfinished mess was the result of many frustrating hours of work. I haven't got around to finishing that yet. What's it supposed to be? Port key. For moments when you couldn't apparate, or if you were trapped in an anti-apparition ward, 
I haven't worked out the calculations. Granger looked mildly impressed. Draco supposed that she was surrounded by the nation's greatest magical brains on the daily, and that he ought to be pleased that she was mildly impressed by a mere Aura's paltry creation. An on-demand port key would be something, said Granger. Portis is a pain in the arse of an enchantment, said Draco, trying to sound resigned, rather than sullen. Have you ever thought of making more of these rings? You could monetize these easily, said Granger, holding the ring aloft. Do I look like I need money? asked Draco. Granger leveled a stare at him. Her back straightened. They had been dangerously close to lapsing into a civil conversation, and she seemed to have forgotten who she was talking to. She sniffed in lieu of responding. Anyway, I can't mass-produce the ring. Right, said Granger, weighing the ring in the palm of her hand. Because this isn't just some trinket you put a few neat charms on. No. This is an artifact. Indeed. Family heirloom, if I were to hazard a guess. Yes. Of course she spotted the concealment charm that made the ring look like a plain silver band. Now she tapped her wand to reveal the ring's true appearance. An ornate silver Ouroboros, ever eating its own tail. And on the inside, the family motto, Sanctimonia Vincent Semper. Purity will always conquer. You are certain this ring won't immediately attempt to amputate my finger? I'm not pure, after all, said Granger. Draco felt that the temperature in Granger's office had dropped rather suddenly. Did you see a sign of dark magic? asked Draco. Too quickly. He sounded defensive. Blast. If there was dark magic, it's gone now, said Granger. She tapped the ring again, reverting it back to the plain silver band. She looked thoughtful. I'll need some time to go through this extremely comprehensive list of recommendations, she said at length. Take the time you need, said Draco. But you know that the alternative is Shacklebolt setting up a bed camp for me. Overnights in your laboratory. She eyed him. Then she seemed to decide that he must be joking. I'll need to think about item 56 in particular. Do you want the ring back in the meantime? Keep it, said Draco. Have your friends analyze it. Isn't one of the Weasley brothers meant to be good at that stuff? And when you've quite settled any doubts, owl me, and we can get on with our lives. Granger perked up, as though getting on with her life without a Draco-shaped barnacle attached to her was the kindest hope she could offer. I will, she said. Two of her students, kitted up in their strange white cloaks and goggles, knocked at the door, excited to share some new development with dear Professor Granger. Draco rose to leave as Granger donned her own white coat to join the students in the laboratory. There was an awkward, conflicted look on her face. Draco, never one to make things easy, merely raised an eyebrow at her. I suppose I want to thank you for working through this as you are. I haven't exactly been pulling my weight around trying to find a solution to Shacklebolt's request. The ring is a good idea. I think you're more than pulling your weight elsewhere, said Draco. He left. She muttered something that might have been a goodbye. Chapter 3. House Call by Genius Inventor Draco's Eagle Owl was given a decent workout in the coming days as Draco and Granger negotiated back and forth on a few of the recommendations that he'd made. She suggested that some of the measures were positively draconic, pun intended, and tried to push back on them with an especial focus on the home visit for personalized wording. Eventually, Draco pulled out his most severe quill and composed the following. Granger. Shacklebolt's orders on the warding of the Granger domicile are not up for negotiation. Do let me know when would be a convenient time to come by this week for warding. If you don't, I shall drop by at an inconvenient time by default. D. For Draconian. Malfoy. 
unsure if you heard my sigh of exasperation from London, so I'm recording its occurrence here for your information. I am more than capable of improving the warding to my own property, or of hiring a warding firm, but if Shacklebolt is insisting on your particular expertise, so be it. See my schedule for options. I have just updated it. NB. They are very few. Tuesday evening looks the most promising, but I will be the doctor, muggle healer, on call at the local surgery and may have to leave in the middle. H. Granger. I know what a doctor is. D. So what did the home of a nationally famous scholar, war hero, and healer, champion of just causes, researcher in danger look like? A modest sort of cottage in Cambridgeshire, as it happened. Three bedrooms at Draco's best guess. Granger stood at the gate. As he approached from his apparition point, she waved her wand to allow him to pass whatever preliminary wards she had set up. What's wrong with your face? she asked Draco, near the gate. Always to the point, was Granger. Bludger, said Draco. Oh, looks bad. It probably did, too. Zabini had a mean swing. As he neared the gate, Draco saw Granger scrutinizing the injury with a well-practiced eye. She vacillated for a moment. Then, apparently unable to resist do-gooding, blurted out, Do you want me to have a look at it? No, I've already put a salve on, said Draco, brushing his fingers against his slowly bruising jaw. That's going to make a lovely hematoma. I'm fine. I came here to ward your house, not for a consult. Granger's mouth pressed into a thin line. Are you going to invite me in? asked Draco, irked by her standing there, watching him with something like concern. Now he felt like some kind of vampire angling for an invitation over the threshold. Come in, then, said Granger, a little snappish, pulling the gate open. Draco saw that she was dressed in another version of the white coat, this time accessorized with a dangling contraption wrapped around her neck. You've left your auto-asphyxiation device on, said Draco, pointing it out. It's a stethoscope, said Granger, with an unspoken Eucretin attached to the end of the sentence. Right, said Draco not deigning to request clarification. Give us a tour and let's crack on. She brought him through to the cottage's front room, which might have been a living room, except that it was an explosion of books. You scolded me for placing a book half an inch out of place. Look at this disaster, said Draco, piqued by the injustice. It's my digitizing project, said Granger. It's a temporary disaster. She gestured to the muggle machine in the center of it all, connected to a flattish version of a computer digitizing? Yes, preserving magical knowledge through muggle means, as I'm growing tired of lugging enormous books about, of finding irreparably damaged or lost material because some idiot spilled tea on a page 20 years ago, and of having to search for things through an ancient record cards like it's 1855. It's a pet project for my rarest volumes. Unfortunately, I haven't had much time to dedicate to it as I'd like. She brought Draco through to the kitchen a rather muggle space save for the variety of magical plants explosively taking over the window ledges and various potions aglow here and there. There might have been something magical slowly brewing in a cauldron at the hearth, but she swept and passed it. Conservatory? asked Draco as they moved to the next room. Granger regarded him like he had just confirmed what a posh twat he was. A conservatory? This isn't Ascot House. The letting agent called it a sunroom. That seemed an optimistic appellation to Draco who watched January's sleep begin to drizzle against the glass ceiling with skepticism. Then, an odd, orange, squash-faced creature appeared and wound its way around Granger's ankles. In another moment of wild optimism, Granger referred to it as a cat. What's wrong with your cat? asked Draco, bending over to regard the creature with concern. 
Nothing's wrong with him, said Granger. Both she and the creature looked at Draco, with great offense. He's part measel and very intelligent. Aren't you, my darling, my sweetums, my angel boy? As its ears were massaged by Granger, the cat regarded Draco with an expression of utmost disdain. Then it decided that it had had enough of Granger's attention and turned to leave. Its absurd tail held so high that Draco got a full view of its bumhole. Charming, said Draco. The tour continued to the cramped upstairs space. Three small bedrooms, as Draco had guessed, with predictable points of entry that he would have to ward. The first bedroom appeared to be used as a study. Draco noted a kind of plinth in the middle of the space. On it rested a grimoire, very old and damaged, surrounded by the glow of stasis charms. Granger saw what had caught his attention. A tragedy. Don't ask me about it or I shall cry. Draco did not wish to deal with bookish sniveling and did not pursue the subject, but he made a mental note of the object for future prying. The second bedroom was quite bare, save for a long mat on the floor, candles, and a cluster of orchids. What ritual was Granger preparing to cast here? He tried to make sense of the candle arrangement, but it didn't match the geometry of anything he recognized. Finally, they came to Granger's bedroom, which she permitted him a glance into with evident unease. Draco couldn't find a civil way to say, Stop bloody fidgeting. I only need to see how the baddies might try to kidnap you. I'm not here to rifle through your knickers. So he said nothing. An obnoxious jingle began to play somewhere in Granger's vicinity. She pulled a palm-sized muggle thingy out of her pocket and spoke into it. From what Draco understood, she was being summoned to the surgery by the means of this device. She confirmed this by rushing past Draco to the stairs. I have to go. I think you've seen enough to orient yourself. Please set the wards to let Crookshanks in and out. He likes to roam. I'll be back in a few hours. Crookshanks? called Draco as Granger tripped down the stairs. The cat, said Granger. She disappeared outside, but instead of the crack of disapparation, Draco heard the sound of a motor. Granger was driving. A muggle car. The absolute weirdo. Or perhaps not, he thought upon reflection, as he made his way back to the garden. If she was going to a muggle surgery, she'd have to show up by muggle means. An instantaneous apparition at the door would raise questions. As he pondered the overfilled dual life that Granger led, Draco began to ward. After about two hours of work, Draco pronounced himself satisfied. The wards would need to be recast every week or so, but no one would be able to waltz in sans Granger's permission. Points of entry and egress were all reinforced with the Aura's standard kit and a few of Draco's own inventions. Underground approaches would be flummoxed by a robust Depellens Penetrationum, and aerial attacks would be rebuffed by a Calais Presidium. The usual assortment of intruder alarms was scattered about. Frankly, for a witch of Granger's relative fame, whose two closest chums were now oars, her protection measures had been pretty paltry. But then, it was peacetime, and she was a scholar now, not a child chasing dark objects to murder an evil wizard seven times over. The half-neasel stared balefully at Draco through the sleet from the shelter of the stoop. Draco added the creature's magical signature to the wards and told him so. The creature blinked at him. Draco was unnerved. Just as the rain began to lessen, a car made its way up the drive and behind the cottage. Granger rounded the corner a moment later. Still here, are you? I've just finished, panted Draco. Warding was a magically exhausting task. The half-neasel was given a great many kisses on his ugly head as Draco stood by and tried not to look wet and sweaty. And where was his thank you, if you please? I shall have to word your car, said Draco, if you use it to get around a lot. 
and the muggle surgery if you're there regularly. Granger frowned at him. My car is brand new. You can't ward it. You'll mech up something. In the face of Draco's confused offense, she added, Cars have electrical components in them now. Maybe they didn't when you were in muggle studies. This was said as though Draco was approximately 120 years old and had last taken muggle studies when cars were called horseless carriages. I'll bung a sneakoscope into the glove box, said Granger. For someone so clever, she certainly was an idiot. Excellent, said Draco. That'll definitely ward off a Bombarda Maxima from 20 meters out. I'll be able to tell Shockabolt that we've taken all necessary measures to protect you when we pull your charred remains out of the wreckage. The violent imagery was successful. Granger gave in. Fine, you can ward it, but do try to stay away from the, the center bits with all the buttons next to the steering wheel. Draco's moment of triumph was ruined by a long and echoing hungry growl, unmistakably from his stomach. Unfortunate, he was prepared to blame the cat. There was a pause. Granger's eyes flitted to Draco's midriff. She appeared to be struggling between her natural feelings for him and her manners. Then finally, you must be famished. Do you want to come in? I have a few snacks. We can go over the recommendations. And the ring. Why, yes, Draco was starving. Two hours of warding really did take it out of a man. However, there was a five-course meal waiting for him at the manor. However, he wanted to wrap up this affair and have his next communication with Granger be regarding the return of the ring, however many months hence. All right, said Draco. Draco popped into the loo to refresh himself, which mainly involved scourgifying his armpits the height of class, Mother would be proud, attempting some drying charms on his robes and splashing water onto his face. His hair he deemed a lost cause tonight, not that he had anyone to impress here. And besides, in this cottage, with Granger the human anemone and her orange toilet brush of a familiar, his hair was easily still best in show. His entire look was complemented by the magnificent bruise starting to develop along his jaw. He pressed more of the salve into it, Annoyed that Granger had been right about how bad it was going to get. He trudged to the kitchen, where Granger had the scroll of recommendations and the ring set out upon the kitchen table. She removed the white coat and stuffed it into a muggle machine at the end of the counter. Judging by the folded piles around it, a washing apparatus. Another long-sleeved top underneath. Who knew that Granger had such an aversion to exposing her elbows? The kitchen table was pushed into a corner. Draco therefore took a chair next to Granger. From this vantage, far closer than he'd been to her at any point previously, he noted that she was in possession of a decent pair of tits. However, Granger chose that moment to unravel the scroll, now liberally scribbled with question marks and counter-suggestions, and Draco was unable to feel attracted because he was being suffocated by waves of swat. Some of my principal concerns, said Granger, nodding her chin towards the parchment, which promised a long and arduous evening of argument. But first, let's eat something. She rummaged about in a pathetically empty cupboard and popped some options onto the table. As far as Draco was concerned, the chief article of diet was cat hair. He pulled a few orangey strands from his mouth as the cat, damn the creature, wound its way around his chair's legs, looking smugly at him. Granger had the courtesy of looking abashed when she noticed. I'm sorry, she waved her wand in Draco's direction, banishing most of the fur. It does get everywhere. Sometimes I think he can actually will it into existence. Into unspeakable places. Draco, still pulling out a hair, said, Pfft, in response. But what he really wanted to say was, 
If I find orange fur on my balls tonight, I shall skin that animal with my bare hands. Granger tore open a package of something and passed it to him. What is this? asked Draco, holding up one of the things. Cheesy what's-its, which explained everything, obviously. But for her part, Granger ate tuna, directly from the tin. Grim, Granger, said Draco. It's protein, said Granger. She looked at the mediocre spread that Draco was scowling at and got a bit defensive. I haven't had time to go to the shops. Why don't you send a house elf? As the words came out of his mouth, Draco cut himself off, but it was too late. Granger was looking at him like he had just confirmed, for the second time that evening, what an overprivileged wanker he was. She rose, tight-jawed, to make tea. It seemed an excuse to get away from his immediate vicinity, but whatever. Draco wasn't here to make friends. Granger banged about with the kettle. She looked like she was holding back a certain quantity of Draco-oriented vitriol. He surreptitiously checked his pockets. He did have a bezoar on him, in case her tea had any special additives courtesy of the house elf vigilante. Granger set her mugs on the table, in rather more firmness than was necessary. There was no immediate evidence of poison. She had found a packet of biscuits to go with the tea. Draco ate two-thirds of it like a famished thing. And if he were poisoned, then so be it. Then Granger straightened out the parchment, seemed to, with an effort, compartmentalize her feelings about Draco the Winker, and became all business. She queried him on the recommendations as though he were an apprentice or who had submitted this for review, and ought to be grateful for the feedback. And so they argued through the list, on item 14, whether he would add caretaking staff to the laboratory's wards, he conceded. On item 26, whether she really needed to give him notice when she was leaving town, yes. And if so, how much notice? 24 hours. On item 33, what constituted a public event, over 40 people. Item 34, what did she have to advise him of her attendance at Muggle Ones, because he said so. Could he not make her home unplottable? She had Muggle friends who might want to visit. No. And so on and so forth, until they came to item 56. Granger refilled her tea and pulled out another package of biscuits given that Draco had straight eaten the entire first one. So, the ring, said Granger. The ring, said Draco. The crux of the thing, the object that meant he could continue his life in relative happy Granger-less freedom, and still satisfy the minister and Tonks. I've had it looked at by a few experts. It does seem quite safe. They were rather impressed by it, actually. Draco wanted to say, naturally, I am a genius. Where is your fits-it now? He sipped his tea self-righteously instead. I've also had a chat with Tonks, continued Granger. She probably told you how much she likes the idea, too. Means you'll be able to take on other assignments while monitoring me at a distance. So, all told, glowing reviews all around, with minimal cons, and I am willing to proceed. I do have a question for you, however. Yes, said Draco, even though he had a fair guess about the question. In fact, he was surprised she hadn't asked earlier. How does the information tracked by the ring come to you? Draco held up his hand and waved his wand at it, canceling the notice-me-not charm there. Ah, said Granger as the silver ring on Draco's finger came into view. Her gaze flicked from Draco's ring to the one on the table. Then, after some private deliberations in that over-large brain of hers, she said, quite intelligently in Draco's opinion, I shan't ask more questions about the original use of these things. I feel that further details might put me off the whole affair. Good shout, said Draco. 
because, yes, these ancient rings had long been worn by married couples in the Malfoy family. His mother had removed hers many years ago, following Lucius Malfoy's death in Azkaban. The ring's silence was a constant reminder of the loss, and she could no longer bear to wear it. Draco had modified the ring so that there would be only one-way communication between Granger's and his. He certainly didn't need her being alerted every time his heart rate spiked when he was having a morning wank, thanks. Living on in happy ignorance of these thoughts, Granger asked, Is anything special required to do it, or do I just put it on? I'll do it, said Draco. It needs to be done by the person wearing the ring's, uh, mate. He tried to be gruff and businesslike about it. But there are very few things in the world as unbusinesslike as a man putting a ring on a woman's finger. And it was awkward, despite his best attempts. He wondered if Granger found it as awkward as he did. She was studying the kitchen wallpaper, a tint of pink eye on her cheeks. Her hand was small in his, and delicate. The ring went on effortlessly. He felt a kind of enlivening in the ring on his own hand. It had someone to talk to now. The distress beacon is activated by twisting it three times around your finger, said Draco to break the silence. Do that and I'll apparate to you immediately. Granger snapped away from her fascination with the wallpaper. All right. Do reserve it for an actual critical situation, Granger, not because you found tea spilled on a book. I'm very much hoping I'll never have to use it at all. She looked at the ring glinting on her hand. At least the thing didn't immediately try to kill me. Don't get too comfortable. It could be playing a long game. Draco tapped the scroll they had discussed ad nauseum, integrating the scribbled results of their back and forth into a clean version. Then he created a duplicate for her. Now that we finalize this, you must stick with it. We've established a duty of care, and I'd rather not be dragged in front of the Wizengamot for professional negligence resulting in the death of the great Hermione Granger. I understand, came the great Hermione Granger's serious reply. Good. Now, before I go, one last thing. Draco dug a hand into his pocket. My owl's lost half a pound of weight since we've been communicating. So. Feed him more treacle tart, interjected Granger. Her cat was on her lap, finishing the tin of tuna. I've decided to give in to the trend and buy these things, finished Draco. He placed a pair of Weasley's jabbering jotters on the table. You've probably heard of them. All the rage amongst the younger generation. Owls aren't quite the thing anymore. Not immediate enough. In Draco's opinion, a sad end to a long wizarding tradition. One couldn't write a strongly worded letter on a jabbering jotter. One simply couldn't. I am familiar with those, said Granger. She was very obviously holding back a smirk. Draco weighed the pros and cons of asking for the reason behind this mark. He decided against. Between her and the cat, the levels of smugness in the room would soon asphyxiate him. So you know how they work? asked Draco, passing her the small magical notepad. Oh yes, said Granger, accepting the object. Thank you. I feel bad about your owl. He'll recover as soon grow fat from lack of exercise. His job here was done. Draco rose with a general mutter of thanks for the tea. Granger replied with some inaudible words of gratitude for the warding. The cat attempted to trip him and break his neck on the way out of the kitchen. Draco decided that that was a suitable end to an unpleasant evening. Chapter 4 In Bulk In his handful of years working with Potter and Weasley, Draco had developed a cool, professional kind of rapport with them, which Weasley demonstrated the next morning by calling, Oi, dickhead! and hanging over Draco's cubicle wall like a disjointed ginger muppet. What do you want, Weasel? We heard Hermione's got assigned an aura protection, and that the bloke's a tosser, said Weasley. 
Was that your description or hers? Potter, whose disastrous hair and vivid green eyes popped up over the cubicle wall, said, Ours. She says you've been quite professional. We know the truth. Lucky bugger, said Weasley. How come Tonks gave us the vampires and you the Hermione minding? You don't even like her. I understand that it was a question of competence, said Draco. Tonks said she needed to assign the finest aura to protect the finest mine in the UK. Weasley scoffed. Potter laughed. And the nuisance aura is to deal with the nuisance vampires, finished Draco. I said no such thing, said Tonks, waddling by in a form of a short, overweight man. Shouldn't you all be off working, you blatherskites? You're all nuisance oars as far as I'm concerned. Potter and Weasley chortled. Draco was offended. What's Hermione working on, anyway? That's got old Shaq so worked up, asked Weasley. She won't tell us. That information's on a need-to-know basis, said Draco, tapping his nose. He hadn't a clue either, but winding up the nuisance duo was always a good time. The two of them looked suitably annoyed that Draco seemed to know something they didn't. Work! shouted Tonks from her office. Yes, boss, replied Weasley. We're to the wise, Malfoy, said Potter as they left. Don't insult Hermione's cat. Too late, said Draco. Two weeks passed, during which all was quiet on the Granger front. Her ring had been calibrated to alert Draco to extreme physiological or emotional shifts that might indicate immediate danger. Significant spikes of fear, panic, pain, or unusually high heart rate. In general, Granger seemed to be miraculously even-tempered. There was one day when Draco's ring tingled at him throughout the morning, signaling that Granger's pulse was elevated at various points, but not quite at the threshold signaling a wild panic. He set it out of his mind and joined Gogan and a few junior Aurors for a hand-to-hand combat session. Tonks insisted that her Aurors not only maintained their dueling expertise through rigorous practice, but also their abilities as physical fighters. Many had moaned about having to learn to fight like muggles. Tonks had set them straight. A disarmed aura with hand-to-hand training could still outmaneuver, disarm, or maim an opponent, if he kept his wits about him. A wandless aura without those things was a very dead aura. Granger's elevated pulse, the fourth such incident that morning, interrupted Draco's spar. His momentary distraction earned him a solid uppercut from Gogan. He called for a pause, clutching at his jaw and used the jotter to send Granger an annoyed message consisting solely of punctuation marks, question marks. She responded with a brief note, losing a patient. Draco didn't respond, mostly because he didn't know what to say, but also because Gogan had decided that the break was over and was now attempting to concuss him. A while later, he received the following missive from Granger. By the way, going out of town tomorrow morning just for the day. I know our agreement said 24 hours notice for departures, and this is more like 12. Sorry, it's been hellish. Where, was Draco's response. Somerset, said Grangers. Why? Holiday. One of those asterisk holidays? Granger didn't respond, so yes. That evening, while Draco was at dinner, his ring signaled pain. But it wasn't physical pain. It was the heart pain of grief from somewhere in Cambridgeshire. The poignancy of the feeling surprised him. The sincerity of it. Granger truly was a do-gooder, to the core. He supposed that she had got home and was giving way to the loss of her patient. Draco, is everything all right? Draco found himself being observed by the thoughtful blue eyes of Narcissa Malfoy. He realized he'd stopped eating when the ghostly grief had sufficed his senses. I'm fine, said Draco, just thinking about work. 
Draco hadn't told his mother that he'd requisitioned the Malfoy rings. He was certain that she wouldn't agree with his repurposing, nor with his choice of recipient. He cast about for a safe subject for discussion and remarked on the nicer-than-usual flower arrangements in the center of the table. Floristry was one of his mother's hobbies. Do you like it? asked his mother, leaning over to touch a few delicate petals. She seemed in a pensive mood. It's in bulk tomorrow. In bulk? The word was vaguely familiar to Draco. Some pagan festival or other. Narcissa pulled up an already perfectly placed blossom and replaced it with even more perfectly bouquet. Yes, it marks the end of winter. Your grandmother used to observe those old traditions when I was a little girl. The house would be decorated with snowdrops and daffodils on every surface. We'd have a feast, and we'd feel hopeful knowing that spring was finally on its way. Draco made some polite reply. His mother watched him eat, her own hands folded onto her lap. She had something else to say. What is it? asked Draco. Are you going to be home tomorrow? I've got some friends coming for tea. Draco made a few quick calculations. Those few friends would most certainly happen to have lovely and accomplished daughters, who would no doubt come too. His mother had grown rather less subtle about her matchmaking since he turned 30. Unfortunately for Narcissa, and the eligible young ladies, Draco's own interest in anything longer term than dirty weekend escapades in Paris was nil. He'd done the longer term thing once a two-year engagement to Astoria, and it had been sufficient to confirm that no matter how pure-blooded and well-bred the witch, he was not ready for marriage. Granger's note earlier that day offered a convenient lifeline. Draco grimaced and said, I'll be working. Business in Somerset tomorrow. Granger herself didn't know she'd have company, but too bad for her. He'd call it a spot check. Her safety against threats, real or imagined, was by Shacklebolt, was his highest priority after all. Narcissa seemed unsurprised by the ready excuse. A pity. Next time, then. Dinner concluded, Draco retreated to his chambers, where he took a long bath and nursed his training wounds. His jotter buzzed. He summoned it to find a note from Granger, a delayed response to his earlier question. Yes, one of the Astric holidays. A spot of sightseeing. I'll turn the ring if I need you. That last sentence was Granger speak for, I don't need you. Do not come. You are not invited. No doubt she would get shirty when he turned up. The thought elicited an unexpected tingle of amusement. Then something that had been percolating in the back of Draco's mind since dinner clicked into place. He got out of the tub, dried himself off with a few waves of his wand, and summoned Granger's schedule. Tomorrow was, what had his mother said, in bulk? And that coincided with one of Granger's asterisks. Were there other such interesting coincidences? He ran through the rest of the dates. The next asterisk was a weekend in late March, then one at the beginning of May, then June, then early August. A buzz with anticipatory triumph, Draco descended to the Manor's library, where he pulled out a few volumes of Celtic and Germanic pagan traditions. He was right. Granger's dates matched the old calendars. Draco rolled the old words out onto his tongue. Imbolc, Ostara, Beltane, Letha, Lunasa, Mabon, Samhain. What was Granger up to? Draco was officially intrigued. Draco gave Granger the morning to set out on her Somerset adventure before he joined her. That permitted him an exquisite lie-in, some invigorating flying in the February wind, and the opportunity for a luxurious brunch. He kissed his mother's cheek with insincere regrets about missing tea. Somerset was just far enough from Wiltshire that Draco had to flew into a wizarding pub in Cannington before apparating to Granger's ring. The apparition took a moment longer than usual, with an odd sort of stretch in the final half-second. 
like it was trying to keep up with the destination. When he arrived, Draco understood why. Granger had been moving at a rather rapid pace, given that she was belting down a country lane in her car. Granger shrieked as Draco materialized in the seat beside her. His head was in the passenger footwell, and his boots were, by the feel of it, in Granger's face. It was altogether not his most graceful arrival. Granger swerved onto a verge and brought the car to a halt. Draco turned himself the right way up with difficulty as a barrage of questions came his way, including what the hell he thought he was doing, who did he think he was, how dare he, and whether or not he was actually insane. Granger's voice could be quite shrill, penetrating really. You just apparated into a moving target. Have you completely lost the plot? You could have been splinched into a hundred different pieces scattered about the A-37. I didn't expect it to be a moving target, said Draco, feeling disheveled and a bit sick. Why are you driving? Because you told me apparition and flu were traceable. Who cares if they're traceable? You're allowed to be on holiday. Nice morning for it, by the by, he added as rain pelted the car. Unless your holiday has something to do with your project? Granger glared at him. Aha, said Draco. Seeing that the worst of the fracas had abated, Draco, having spotted a mirror just above Granger's head, swiveled it towards himself. It was the perfect height to check one's hair. Good sorts, muggles, really. They had their priorities straight. Granger sputtered. Did you just commandeer my rearview mirror to fix your hair? You can have it back in a moment, said Draco. Granger was staring at him with an expression of dislike strong enough to unnerve a lesser man. She swiveled the mirror back towards herself. I need that, and get your overlarge feet off my dash. It's not my fault your car is so cramped, said Draco, attempting to bring his legs in. It's not my fault you're a gangly marionette of a man who decided to apparate into my mini. Before Draco had time to register his offense at the unfair comparison, she got the crux of the issue. And why are you here? I'm conducting a spot check, said Draco. A spot check, repeated Granger, looking thoroughly unnerved. Yes. And? Have you established that I'm sound of mind and body? Draco examined her critically. She seemed sound of body, from what he could see under the hat, anorak scarf, and a muggle walking boots. Soundness of mind was less easy to gauge. There was a sparkle of something dangerous in her eye. Well, she pushed, I'm fine, as you can see. You can go away now. Draco decided to take the high road and attempt some honesty. Also using this as a pretext. A pretext for what? Avoiding some unpleasantness at home. What sort of unpleasantness? Relentless sort of which. My mother is having ladies over for tea. Whatever Granger was expecting, it hadn't been that. A queer expression flashed across her face, as of one holding back a laugh. Ladies over for tea, she repeated. Yes. Why is that so funny? I thought it'd be something more... more fearsome. The held-back laughter faded. Anyway, I don't want to suffer because you're afraid of some ladies. I don't need nor want you hanging about today. I have things to do. It's a bulk today, said Draco conversationally. Did you know? Granger said nothing, but looking freshly annoyed. What are you up to in Somerset at Imbolc? asked Draco. I didn't know you kept the old ways. You don't seem the type for flowers and dancing about poles. When Granger didn't answer him again, Draco smirked and settled himself into the seat. I've assessed the situation, and since it's obviously to do with your dangerous project, I will be monitoring you today, for your own safety, per item 11 of my recommendations. Don't argue. I will eject you from this car, said Granger. 
You can't do that. I can. This button, here, said Granger, pointing to a round thing on the dashboard. It's a safety feature Muggles invented. A whining whistle began to wail through the car. Granger jumped. What is that? Oh, that, said Draco. A safety feature wizards invented. I put a sneakoscope in your glove box, as you suggested. You lied to me about the eject button, and I'm hurt. Granger leaned over him and popped open the glove box. Ow, my knees! To see that there was indeed a sneakoscope in therein. It whistled and flashed for a few moments more. Then, given that there was no more lying going on, it stilled. There was a long silence. Granger pulled back into her seat, leaned her forehead on the steering wheel, and appeared to be collecting herself. Fine, she said at length. You can stay for the duration of this distressing tea of your mother's. Just don't get in the way. She turned the key and the car's ignition kicked into the life. Put on your seatbelt. Or don't. I suppose I don't care if you die a gruesome death. The sneakoscope wailed again. Granger swore at it quite colorfully. So what does that button really do? asked Draco when the row had faded. This innocent question seemed to set Granger off anew. It used to be the stereo system until someone's warning messed it up. Now it only plays Austrian folk songs. Draco pushed the button. Austrian folk songs began to play. Granger's hands were tight on the steering wheel as she pulled back onto the road. It was clear that, in her opinion, Draco was the real nuisance or Muggle signposting was excellent. As they made their way down progressively windier country lanes, Draco was able to guess at their final destination with degree of certainty. Glastonbury, he said. Interesting. Granger said nothing. Her displeasure at this point continued, and it was not hiding it. It mattered little to Draco. A rainy drive through the English countryside with an angry Granger was a refreshing change from the usual two small sandwiches and coquettish fortune hunters. Honestly, the winding drive, the Austrian music, the fuming witch, it was absurd. It was amusing. It was fun. Draco reached to press another button on the car's central panel, out of curiosity. Granger slapped his hand away. She had decent reflexes, reflected Draco as he sucked on his stinging knuckle. Instead of driving down the street that led onto the town of Glassbury proper, Granger made a detour to a car park at the edge of the forest. There, a footpath winded into the woodland, rather soaked and frosty-looking at this time of year. What's this? asked Draco. The Mendip Way, replied Granger in that way she had of answering his questions without actually answering his questions. She got out of the car. I'm going for a walk. You may wait in the car. May he? So generous. Draco, after a brief struggle with the handle, let himself out of the vehicle. He withheld groans as he stomped some feeling back into his legs. Granger observed his emergence from the mini with her hands on her hips. He felt her observing his choice of clothing, his aura robes over his perennial suit, and footwear, perfectly functional, dragon-hide boot. She must have concluded that it would have to do, or otherwise, that it wouldn't do, and would put him in peril, and that was just perfect. At any rate, she turned around and began to walk towards the woods. Draco saw her cast some rain-repelling and warming charms on herself. He imitated her. It seemed a good idea. As they entered the Mendip Way, Draco cast a few detection spells, looking for evidence of other beings, magical or muggle. However, it seemed that the only he and Granger were mad enough to go for a ramble on a day like this. Save some roe deer and a nearby clearing, they were alone. Satisfied that no madmen were about to vault out and attack Granger, Draco caught up to her in a few long strides. It quickly became obvious that this wasn't just a walk for Granger's health. She was looking for something, or several somethings. 
She peered into the underbrush, touched the trunks of trees, gently caught the fronds of ferns in her palm, and studied them. She took nothing, however, and so quashed any theories about ingredient gathering that Draco might have been entertaining. They progressed in this manner for a good half hour, marked by a pause to refresh their fading impervious charms. Finally, Granger stopped and pulled out a list. Draco unashamedly peeked over her shoulder. Narrator's note, there is a very long list of ingredients that I cannot possibly pronounce, so we're going to move on from there. All right. Granger used her wand to cross out the majority of the list. Only the tassel moss remained. What's tassel moss? asked Draco. Granger flinched away from him. Apparently, she'd been so much in her own head that she'd quite forgotten that Draco was there, much less noticed that he was skulking over her shoulder. Her hand flew to her fast-beating heart. Draco felt faint echoes of it through the ring. He expected to be told off. However, her bad mood seemed to have been replaced by tentative excitement related to this list. One of the rarer mosses in this part of England, said Granger. Why are you looking for it? Granger began to walk again, her attention focused this time on dead logs, old stumps, and other likely habitats. Because it will confirm that I'm in the right place. The right place for what? Granger waved the question away. I'm merely confirming a theory. What theory? Draco, too, could be relentless. Something related to my project, said Granger with irritating ambiguity. What's Moss got to do with your chimera cells or whatever? Nothing, at least not directly. She returned to look at him through the rain, as though to gauge what was worth telling him. I'm retracing the steps of an old, long-forgotten witch whose work included, amongst many things, descriptions of certain sacred sites in the British Isles. So, the Vale of Avalon. Specifically, Glastonbury's Wells. Or at least, that's my educated guess. Not much of her work is still extant today. All we have are fragments. She tended to wax lyrically on flora, which helps me narrow down possible locations by cross-referencing the rarer plant. Of course, she was writing hundreds of years ago, so things may have changed. But few places on the island will support both singing sedge and mellifluous honeywort. They typically thrive in radically different ecosystems, as you no doubt know. No, Draco didn't know. In fact, he'd never even heard of these plants. But he nodded instead of admitting it. When Draco next looked up for a, hap- a heart-stopping moment, Granger had disappeared. He snatched his wand. Then he saw her backsiding, poking over the edge of a path. She was on her hands and knees examining a rather wet ditch. Whatever had caught her eye, it wasn't what she was looking for. She regained her feet. She didn't look disappointed, however. She looked determined and muddy. Tassel moss looks as you'd imagine, said Granger. Tiny tassels across the top. It's the sporangia, usually big in the genus. They turn pink in the summer. Of course, we're a little too early for that. Was this woman a genius at herbology on top of everything else? Draco wondered how much of the Potter and Weasley's limited scholarly success was due to absorbing her knowledge by intellectual osmosis. She was, frankly, overwhelming. Granger carried on along the path, squatting down occasionally to observe things. It was altogether rather a peaceful ramble, with the charms keeping him dry, the sound of the rain and the occasional brave songbird, and verbalizations from Granger telling off various mosses because they weren't the right one. For the first time since he'd taken the Granger case file from Tonks's hands, Draco felt glad of the decision. This was certainly more pleasant than most of his work as an or. Fewer hexes and eviscerations coming his way for a start. And bonus, it got him out of the tea with the ladies, and promised many more opportunities to do so. That set would be tut-tutting at Granger over their teacups. 
Granger, with her hat askew, her face smeared with the dirt, clambering about in ditches instead of finding herself a rich husband. But she was apparently doing something great for wizard kind, and what, pray, had they achieved? I think I found it, called Granger. Draco pushed through some brambles to be, once again, presented with a view of Granger's bum. Familiarity breeds fondness. He was rather developing an appreciation for it. For reasons known only to herself, Granger had all but pressed her face into a patch of moss that was breathing deeply into it. Granger, what? It's meant to smell like candy floss. And it does, said Granger, rising with a leap. There was dirt on the tip of her nose. In the shadows of the great oaks around them, her dark eyes shone with excitement. A curl of her hair clung damply to her lip. Her cheeks were pinched pink by the February wind. Her smile flashed at him, a brief, rare thing. Draco realized with a shock that Granger was pretty. She clapped her hands together and squealed at the clump of moss, as though it was a treasure worth the thousands upon thousands of galleons. Before Draco could process this realization, a hoarse scream echoed from some distant corner of the woods. To his amusement, Granger leapt to his side immediately, her wand raised. The queer screaming continued. When Granger saw that he hadn't reacted and didn't seem alarmed, she asked, What is that horrid racket? That's a fox, said Draco. Oh, some slag of a vixen's asking to get her back blown out. I see, said Granger. Another scream. Draco wanted to laugh. Granger's expression had gone rather prim. She pulled out her list of plants and crossed the final line out. This is an excellent development. The moss, I mean, not the slaggy fox. Let's go back to the car. That's it? asked Draco. It seemed rather easy. Oh no, said Granger. If only. I have about 3,000 other things to do before that's it. Knowing her, she was probably not exaggerating. They walked back to the car. Without Granger's constant hops into vegetation, it was rather quicker than the way in. Why did you have to do this on in bulk? asked Draco. In his opinion, this would have been better planned for Beltane, for more congenial weather. She ignored the question in favor of posing one of her own. Do you think your mother's guests have left? Draco conjured a pocket watch. No, he lied. Are you sure? Rather a long tea, isn't it? Society teas are multiple-hour affairs. My mother's favorites will probably stay for dinner and drinks. Granger's moment of smiling amongst the oak trees was fading, and being replaced by the annoyance that seemed a chronic condition in Draco's presence. Why don't you go somewhere else? She won't know that you're strictly working. I'm not leaving, said Draco. If you were to be attacked while out and about on this project work, Shacklebolt would have my hide. What are you protecting me from? said Granger, with a sweeping gesture at the nothingness around them. Randy foxes? If you'd tell me what you were doing, I'd be better able to establish potential threats. If there's one thing I've learned from the enormous mistake I made telling Shacklebolt, it's that I'm not sharing another word on my work. Granger crossed her arms. Her posturing was rather undermined by the single leaf stuck in her hat, waving in the wind. Brilliant. I'll just continue to wave my wand about waiting for the nameless baddies, shall I? No, you can apparate to the nearest pub, have a cozy drink, and go home when you'll be safe from the ladies. I'm not the one who needs to stay safe, said Draco. Granger made a sound of frustration. You can't come, you'll complicate things. Complicate things how? I can stay out of the way. Didn't I just stay out of the way? I'm visiting the Chalicewell Gardens next. That involves passing as a muggle, which you don't. I can very well pass as a muggle, said Draco indignant. The Aura program includes a substantial unit on concealment and disguise, and I passed with distinction, thank you. 
Had he just been thinking that Granger minding had ended up being a good decision? Why must she fight him on everything? Granger rummed at her temples. We're wasting time. Time I haven't got. Then let's go, said Draco. Show me your best attempt at a muggle to size, said Granger. There was a desperate kind of hope in her eyes, as though she knew it was going to be rubbish, but wanted to see, just in case. Draco shrank his aura robes into a handkerchief, which he pocketed. Then he modified his suit to fit the current muggle fashion, a little more relaxed in its tailoring. His boots he made into shiny men's dress boots. His wand was concealed in a holster at his wrist. His hair he didn't touch. It was the height of perfection, magical or muggle. And? he asked, rotating slowly under Granger's critical gaze. It'd be ideal if we were going to the Dorchester for dinner, said Granger. She sighed. But I'll take it. Maybe we can make you look like a spiffy young professor, rather than a banker who's lost his way. She approached and made her own modifications, removing his tie and transfiguring his shoes into muggle trainers. Then she reached up and undid the top button of his shirt. Queer sensation. Have Granger do that. Draco filed it away for further analysis later. That'll have to do, said Granger, though she looked cynical. If we're critiquing each other's appearances, you're in need of a scourgify, said Draco. Granger transfigured her car window into a mirror to discover, with an, oh my, quite how mud-caked she was. She made quick work of the stray leaf and the dirt, then gave Draco an odd look. What? said Draco. Nothing, said Granger. Tell me, said Draco. No. Yes. I just, I might have expected some joke about the mud from you, said Granger. Draco stilled. Those days are long past. Granger arranged her hat and shrugged. Draco frowned. This wasn't the time for this conversation, but one day she would need to know how he had seen, firsthand, the horrors of those hideous attitudes, and how they still lived in his head in the dead of night, and how much he wished he could take it back. I'm not that person anymore, said Draco. Seeing that he was so solemn, Granger, too, grew serious. All right, I shouldn't have brought it up. I shouldn't have insisted, conceded Draco. That, too. Granger waved her wand, and her erstwhile mirror became a car window again. She grew brisk in her movements. Shall we? Let's, said Draco. Then he ruined the serious moment by needing help with opening the car door. Granger came around to help him with saintly patience. She did not, to her credit, cast any aspirations on his ability to behave like a muggle. Chapter 5 The Keepers They drove in silence for a little while. Granger looked preoccupied. Her thumb tapped the steering wheel and she was worrying her lip. It's going to be a busy afternoon, said Granger at length. At the gardens, I mean. Let's try to keep a low profile. We have to go through the gift shop to buy tickets to go in, but after that we'll be able to go into the gardens themselves and avoid the worst of the crowds. I can keep a low profile, said Draco. Granger gave him a side eye in lieu of a response. Does the water have magical properties? asked Draco. Why do the muggles even know about it? Granger sat up straighter and took a breath, and Draco realized that had activated SWAT mode. The wellsprings in this area have been in use by both muggles and magical folk for millennia, said Granger. It would have been too difficult to wipe the entire thing from so many minds after the statute of secrecy, I suppose. But to answer your question, muggles only know of two sources in Glastonbury. One they call the White Spring, and one they call the Red Well. No real magical properties in either, though muggles have ascribed their own spiritual and mythological significance to both. They have stories linking them to the Holy Grail and King Arthur. He's meant to be buried at the Glastonbury Abbey, and other bits of legend. 
They were now approaching the outskirts of town. Granger turned at the sign pointing to the chalice well gardens. But, she continued, there's a third wellspring, one that you won't find in the Muggle brochures. It's called the Green Well. That one has bona fide magical properties. I need, here Granger hesitated, but seemed to decide that Draco would work out anyway. I need a sample from it. For your pet project? Yes. And why in bulk specifically? You're being rather inquisitive, said Granger. Draco felt that she meant meddlesome, but had chosen the more polite option. I suppose the well reaches the highest magical potency at Imbolc, said Draco. Granger made no answer. I'm right, aren't I? He saw her glance at the glove box, wherein lay the sneakoscope, promising to give away blatant lies. Stop being so curious, said Granger. That's a bit rich coming from you. She scoffed. Being curious is literally my job. I'm a researcher. Your job is to protect me from forces unknown, not interrogate me on a highly confidential proprietary project. Granger pulled into the parking spot, turned off the car, and waited for his retort. This witch was something. Draco had never endured such unrelenting points and counterpoints. He rather felt that, if he'd been keeping track of the score, he'd be the losing party. I'm not a bodyguard. I wasn't assigned to you to clomp along brainlessly behind you, said Draco. No, you are a highly trained, highly competent Auror, and this is an utter waste of your time. Granger took a breath, visibly suppressing her irritation at the entire situation. The opening compliment elicited a tiny spark of delight, quickly suppressed by Draco. He didn't care what Granger thought of him. A group of muggles passed the car, distracting the both of them. Mutually deciding on an unspoken truce, very temporary, Draco was sure, they climbed out of the car. The car park was busy. Muggles and families, muggles pushing prams, muggles in outfits that seemed exceptionally outlandish, even for muggles. I'll warn you now, there are a lot of new-agey types here, said Granger as they joined the crowd headed towards the entrance. New-agey? Hippies, Wiccans, pagans, woo-woo types, Granger seemed to be struggling for a definition. Muggles who are very spiritual and believe in magic, or greater powers anyway, to some extent. Some of them even call themselves witches. They don't realize that there are actual witches and wizards, of course, and actual magic. They collect crystals and things and perform rituals they read about in the old books. Ah, said Draco, though he didn't really understand. I thought muggles were meant to be relentlessly logical. Some are, said Granger. Some are rather less than logical. Or perhaps some of them remembers magic. Or subconsciously knows it exists. Or maybe they just want to believe in something. They entered the gift shop, bustling, cloyingly over-scented. Granger saw Draco wrinkle his nose and said, That'll be the essential oils. The New Agers love those. Draco examined some offensively perfumed candles, labeled For Relaxation. Why doesn't someone tell them they've oversynthesized these things to the point where any minor magical property is utterly lost? Draco now found himself being steered by Granger and parked in a corner of the shop, like a Draco-shaped mini-cooper. Stay here, she said. I'll get us tickets. Don't break anything. Thank goodness for that last tip. He might have begun to pulverize things out of sheer excess of spirit. Shoving his hands into his pockets, Draco stood in the corner and watched Granger go. The crowd around her didn't look at her twice. She really did blend in. As for him, he was the subject of more than a few upward glances. His height, his white blonde hair, his spiffy outfit. Granger had now joined the slow-moving queue for tickets. Having his principal away from him in a busy spot was not something that Draco was keen on. 
from a purely professional standpoint. He performed some surreptitious legitimacy on random sampling of people in the shop. The crowd was compromised mostly of muggles. There was one wizarding couple, but they had no ill intent, nor any idea that Granger was here. Would they recognize her if they saw her? Maybe, but Draco couldn't delve into their minds so precisely from this distance. Granger's instructions to keep a low profile were rather hypocritical, given that she had just struck up a conversation with the muggles in the queue behind her. Draco, annoyed, cast a surface-level legitimacy on the family to check for sinister intentions. Nothing of interest. They were just friendly tourists. He grew aware of a presence lurking about him, peeking at him from around one shelf, then around the other. He pretended to be interested in the smelly candles. Eventually, she showed herself. She was a shop assistant, heavily draped in diaphanous scarves, observing Draco with a bulbous eye. A name tag was pinned to her jumper. Eunice. Hello, she said to Draco. Might I help you find something? Draco caught her gaze and read her immediate thoughts. Nothing ominous, save for the fact that she thought him dreamily handsome. No thanks, said Draco, turning back to watch Granger between candles. She was finally nearing the front of the queue. Instead of taking this as the firm dismissal it was, Eunice fluttered closer to Draco, her eyes glued to his face. Your aura is disturbed, she said. Draco felt like he was being addressed by a muggle incarnation of Trelawney crossed with a large moth. I don't think these candles will do you good, said Eunice. I agree with you there, said Draco. The sarcasm was lost on her. She nodded to herself and palpated the air around Draco, as though grasping for something. I'd suggest something stronger, like one of our cleansing incenses, said Eunice, drifting down to point at a different shelf. Draco watched Granger make a beeline to the cafe bar. Would she kindly hurry up and save him from the moth? Eunice was now holding her hand towards him with her eyes closed. She shook her head gravely. Your heart chakra is underactive. Is it? Venus incense, I think, said Eunice. She grasped a packet and waved the pungent thing under Draco's nose. Although, with your need for grounding, perhaps the Saturn... She rummaged around the shelf and said things about transmuting energy and ascending to the celestial plane. Draco spied Granger's hat bobbing in his direction through the crowd. I have to go, he said, making his escape. Oh, do you? Eunice seemed put out. She slipped something into Draco's hand. My card. I do chakra realignments. Do reach out. Our energies are quite compatible. Eunice floated away just as Granger arrived, bearing coffees. Who was that? asked Granger, observing the retreating flutter of scarves. Eunice, said Draco. She gave me this. Do you need your chakras realigned? Granger exchanged one of her coffees for the preferred card. Something had been scribbled hastily on it. Ooh, she gave you her number. What's that mean? That Eunice fancies you, said Granger, looking amused. Most women do. Granger snorted. Like this was a wickedly funny joke, instead of a universal truth. She caught herself, sobered up, and looked at him with fresh wonder. You're funny, Malfoy. I live to serve, said Draco to cover his vexation. Granger returned the card to him. Too bad you don't even know what a mobile is. Poor Eunice was quite barking up the wrong tree. She thought me dreadfully handsome. She also thinks your chakras need realigning. Let's not get too wrapped up in the soundness of Eunice's judgments, said Granger crisply. Let it be known that if any man needed his ego checked, 
A simple exchange with Granger would quite set him to rights. Draco sipped at the coffee Granger had brought. It was, remarkably, not terrible. How did you know I liked double espressos? Granger shrugged. Seemed your style. Bold? Bitter? Overpriced. Draco hid his scoff in the cup. Granger set them on a course towards the gardens. The rain began to let up and make way for tentative sunlight. The gardens were unexpectedly lovely, even if the muggles in charge didn't have access to the warming charms and magical additives that made wizarding gardens such a spectacle through winter. Draco thought his mother might even appreciate the place. Though it was February, there was color about, thanks to the careful plant selections. Musical gurgles of water from wellsprings everywhere added auditory interest, and the whole thing was gently illuminated by hundreds upon hundreds of candles tucked away in stony recesses. Signposts here and there asked visitors to maintain silence, out of respect for those meditating. Granger cast a silencing charm around the two of them so they could talk. They came upon the Red Well, aptly named, with its rust-colored water. Draco read the plaque with a passing interest. As Granger had noted earlier, the Muggles had fabricated some fanciful bit of Christian mythology, suggesting the Holy Grail was buried here. There were also a few references to Arthurian legend. The Muggles know about Morgan Le Fay? asked Draco, an eyebrow raising at the sight of such famous witch's name on the Muggle placard. Yes, but she's a figure of myth, said Granger. Most of them don't think she really existed. Draco tutted. Imagine. Next, they strolled through the well house that contained the White Spring, a dark, wet-smelling place where Muggles had decorated the rough stone walls with candles and small shrines to deities real and imagined. St. Bridget, the Lady of Avalon, the King of the Fairies. Here we are, said Granger, as they made their way down a quieter, less-used path round the back of the well house. There should be a sort of platform to take us down to the Greenwell. We'll have to use our wands to get in. Let's disillusion ourselves in case any muggles pass by. Granger was now a Granger-shaped patch of garden in front of Draco, glimmering in the weak February sun. They stopped, well, Granger stopped and Draco ran into her, at what looked like a manhole cover, tucked halfway under a bush. Across its weathered cast-iron surface were two large circles, intersecting under dead leaves and moss. That symbolizes the interplay between the physical and spiritual worlds, said Granger. Draco could make out her ghostly wand gesturing at it. You might recognize the shape. The red well is constructed the same way. Let's get on. It's the platform down. They stood together on the manhole cover, rather squished. Incantation? asked Draco, getting a mouthful of Granger's invisible hair for the trouble. Vesica Piscis, said Granger, mimicking the circular symbol with the wand wave. The manhole cover shuddered. Granger crept closer to him. She smelled like a gorgeous combination of rain, wet forest, cappuccino, and soap. Then, without a by your leave, the platform dropped out from under them. The gorgeous-smelling witch clung to Draco and pierced both of his eardrums with her shriek. Thank the heavens for those silencing charms, thought Draco as they fell. A thick cushioning spell met them at the bottom of the drop, which was excellent as Draco hadn't intended to break both of his ankles today. He and Granger landed, bounced painfully into each other. He was quite certain he'd elbowed her in the tit. She narrowly avoided his groin with her knee, and collapsed, spread eagle, on a thick bed of glowing fungi. Wow, first-class voyage, drawled Draco in the dark. Gah, responded Granger, with something less than her usual acumen. Draco rose. Granger was somewhere on his left, 
She didn't seem to be making out quite as well as he was. She was rather shocked. C couldn't they have set up a levitation charm? She asked weakly. I thought that thing was a lift. I didn't expect a harrowing plummet to my death. Malfoy groped about in the dimness to find that his coffee was a lost cause. A pity. They dismissed their disillusionments, and when Granger managed to find her feet, began to walk down a passage illuminated by large, bioluminescent mushrooms. The sound of trickling water echoed throughout. Draco saw that even the walls were wet with a constant stream of moisture. As they entered a long, low-ceilinged cave, Draco saw that there were other witches and wizards about. In a corner was what looked like a kind of bookshop, which Granger eyed longingly. There was also a counter that served as an apothecary. The entire place was lit solely by the glow of mushrooms, which were everywhere. The floor, the walls, dangling from the ceiling. Omphalidus luxaturna, said Granger, pretty in a slimy sort of way. If she added a, like you, Draco was going to hex her. His ego had taken enough abuse today. She didn't. It was almost disappointing that she let the occasion slip by. They came at last to the green well, a bubbling green-lit wellspring, flanked by two statues in the penumbra. At least, Draco had thought they were statues, until they moved. The keepers of the well, said Granger, who seemed unsurprised at the sight. Right, you stay here. I need to do the talking. They have to be dealt with politely and respectfully. Ignoring the insinuation that he couldn't be polite or respectful, Draco said, I think I'd rather come. His eyes strained to get a sense of what exactly lurked in the mushroom-speckled darkness. Granger's irritation flared immediately. You said you wouldn't get in the way. You're not even meant to be here. This is delicate and critically important. Fine, hissed Draco. I'll stay here. He was within hexing range anyway. Granger advanced. Draco peered at the two black-draped, hunchbacked forms. Were they witches? It was hard to tell in the dark. If they were witches, they most certainly had hag blood, somewhere up their family tree. As well as a few other things, no doubt. Their twin, pale stares, as luminescent as the mushrooms around them, disconcerted him. He found himself gripping his wand as Granger stepped up to the nearest of the keepers. His first thought, as he processed the situation, was that Granger was either stupidly brave or absolutely fucking reckless. Secondly, he didn't like this at all. These beings felt dark, old, dangerous. Yes, Tonks, she was killed by a hag. Yes, I was right there. Yes, I let her walk right up to it. Yes, she was disemboweled right in front of me. She wanted to pop by for some fancy water from this well, you know? Nothing else would do. Here for a fill, dearie, croaked the keeper to Granger. The husky, dry voice echoed eerily. Yes, if I might, I have an offering, said Granger. Her figure was a slight silhouette, backlit by the luminescent of the green wall. Show me, said the keeper. The creature leaned towards Granger. There was something hungry in her movements. Draco's wand hand twitched. If the thing moved any closer to Granger, he had a decapitation curse ready to be unleashed. Granger, as always, was well prepared. From somewhere in her anorak, she produced three large satchels, which she passed into the claws of the creature. Green, awful, gold. The second keeper shuffled over, stuck her talon-like fingers into one of the bags, and pulled out a handful of glinting galleons. And where had Granger come by an entire sack of galleons, by the by? The gold's providence did not seem to worry the second keeper, at any rate. She crooned her satisfaction. 
Very nice. Lovely. Let the good girl through. The first keeper gestured Granger forward. Haven't you got a vessel, child? Granger produced a large flask, whose golden stopper shone in the dim light. Yes? Will this do? The thing wheezed in assent. At a gesture from the keeper, Granger plunged the flask into the green well. The second keeper stared at Draco, as though aware of his tightly gripped wand and the well-practiced curses that awaited on his tongue. She sniffed the air in his direction. Put the wand away, little boy. This girl won't be meeting her demise here. The first keeper looked up from where she stood beside Granger. The wizard is worried, is he? It is. The first keeper's white eyes caught Draco's. There was ancient magic in them. He dared not perform legitimacy on this old mind. She cackled as though he had spoken out loud. That's right, you won't, silly boy. I'd make your brain soup and drink it while it's still warm, wouldn't I? But look at his eyes, sighed the other keeper. Eyes like the rain-troubled skies. Cold dread trickled down Draco's spine. Though the creature hadn't spoken a direct threat, he wondered whether his dark curses would even be of use against these things. Perhaps he should be thinking light. Don't you start rhyming, said the first keeper to her sister. We don't want to mess with the melon. Er, I'm finished, said Granger, who was now holding up her dripping flask. It was a blessed interjection. Draco was genuinely beginning to feel spooked and trigger-happy. Good girl, said the keeper. Mind you use it wisely. I will, said Granger, stepping away from the two of them. Thank you. Love and light, my girl, said the first keeper. She and her sister cackled as though that was the most riotous thing they had ever heard. Granger gave them a kind of bow and came back to Draco's side. He kept his grip on his wand until they'd walked well out of the keeper's line of sight. Even then he felt the twin pairs of white eyes touching at the back of his head. No, he said, holding Granger to him when she darted towards the underground bookshop. But I wanted to... No, said Draco, his grip on her elbow, unyielding. Let's go. Granger seemed to sense Draco's anxious anger and did not argue further. They walked back to the slow passage that led to the platform. Granger taking two steps for every one of his. When they were finally out of the central cave, Draco turned her to him. What the fuck was that? You might have told me you were off to barter with dark creatures. Granger's face was pale in the phosphorescence. I didn't know they'd be so... so... haggish, cadaverous, lethal. The way the first one was eyeing you, she looked like she wanted to pluck your bloody liver out. And you walked right up to her. No wand. Stop manhandling me, said Granger, shaking off his hands. She was not going to pluck out my liver. They were nice to me, and they're certainly not hags. Not hags, sputtered Draco. You presented them with awful. That's a traditional gift. It's what you're meant to bring to the keepers of the well. Who look like hags and smell like hags and eat like hags, enumerated Draco with irritated vigor. They don't eat like hags. You've just given them the ingredients for awful couscous. If those weren't hags, then what the hell were they? I don't know. They, or successive incarnations of them, anyway, have recurred in texts about the green well for centuries. They're usually described as crone figures. They aren't evil. They're ancient. 
They were bloody she-dementors, and you're never to deal with that kind of creature again without telling me first. I need you to understand that if anything happens to you, Shacklebolt will have my head, Tonks will have my balls, then Potter and Weasley will scavenge the rest. My mother would bury me in a Marmite jar. Do you understand? Fine. But you're overreacting, Granger shook her flask of water at him. I got what I came for. I was prepared. I said the right things, and I brought the right gifts. Now she hit her stride and went on the offense. You almost threw a wrench in the works, getting so bloody hostile that they started taunting you. They could have told you things that would have tormented you for years. What things? What do you mean? interrupted Draco, freshly disturbed. Nothing, said Granger, seeing how intensely he was looking at her. She stepped back. It's stupid. What things, Granger? repeated Draco, looming over her now. She hesitated, but in the face of his agitation, gave in. It's just... Part of the legendary surrounding the Keepers suggests that it's silly and obviously made up. Suggests that they are seers. Seers, repeated Draco. One of them knows when you die, and the other knows how you die. Draco shuddered in spite of himself. Granger tucked a curl behind her ear and began to babble. It's all speculation, of course. Storytelling. It's such a common conceit in old magical texts. They love giving guardian figures added mystique with alleged powers. I don't put much stock in stories involving precognition, of course. Draco cut into her ramble. How can you be so cavalier about that kind of legend? You are literally best friends with the most precognitioned, prophesized, prognosticated, bollocksing boy who fucking lived. Granger straightened and looked ready to sink her teeth into this new argument. That was a highly unusual occurrence. Draco stared into space, running a hand through his hair. I think one of those hags was about to say something, too. She started talking in rhymes. Fuck me. I wonder what she knew. The how or the when. The tales are utterly unsubstantiated, cut in Granger like the chief swat she was. They don't know anything. Don't start thinking about it. Too late. I am thinking about it. What rhymes with skies? Draco said. Flies? Spies? Somehow Granger was squeezing her large flask of well water into the pocket of her anorak. The impossibility of it distracted Draco from his morbid suppositions. What the... What is this? The anorak of Thousand Pockets? How did that fit in there? You didn't even shrink it. I'm a dab hand at extension charms, said Granger, rather too lightly. Can we... So that's how you were carrying around those unholy offerings for the voodoo twins? Said Draco. Finally, one Granger mystery solved. You do know that those charms are heavily regulated by the Ministry, don't you? I'm aware, thank you, said Granger snippy. If I'm reported by anyone, hopefully not present company if he knows what's good for him, I'm prepared to pay the fines in exchange for the convenience. Oh, I see. Is that why you haul enormous sacks of galleons about? For fines? No, I carry those for ballast. Granger fished about in her pocket, and for a wild moment Draco thought she was going to pull a sack of galleons out to swing at his head. But no, she merely produced out her wand and waved it to tell the time. Ugh, I'm late. I had one other thing to do, but you've put me so far behind schedule. Draco raised his eyes to the mushroomy ceiling. Of course it was his fault. What thing? He and Granger squelched their way towards the manhole cover, nestled among the fungi. A moment of pure self-indulgence, said Granger. I've wanted to go for ages, and now I'm in the area, but... But what? You're here, said Granger, and I don't want you to be. Too bad, said Draco. 
Any trust I might have had in your judgment has just been obliterated by your decision to haggle with hags, without a single sodding contingency plan if they got peckish. Granger made a sound that was more growl than anything else. Anyway, what self-indulgence? What's your vice, Granger? None of your bloody business. I promise I've seen worse, whatever it is. Granger ignored him, disillusioning the two of them while Draco made guesses at her secret peccadillo. A brothel? Getting detention? Awful couscous? They stepped onto the platform. Draco heard the invisible Granger take a deep, steadying breath. It served her well for the long scream that accompanied their expulsion to the surface. And just like that, they were back in the chalice well gardens, blinking in the sunshine. Draco couldn't immediately step off the platform. Granger was holding onto him like a drowning creature clinging to a lifeline. An echo of her heartbeat and fear thundered through his ring. Her grip shook. She was terrified. She made a step away, but her knees buckled, and she swung back into Draco instead. Fucking damn starting Ugh! said Granger into Draco's chest. A brilliant observation, said Draco. His voice seemed to bring her back to herself. She held him for a moment longer, then took a shaky breath and stepped away with a muttered apology. Draco glanced about for the muggles, and seeing none, he canceled their disillusionment. Back in the realm of the visible, Granger looked bloodless. That was awful, she said. I thought it was rather fun. Yes, well, you're also one of that diverse cohort lunatics who enjoys Quidditch. Oi. They followed the meandering path back to the entrance of the gardens. Draco could see that Granger's hands, while her fingertips where they peeped out of their anorak, were still trembling. She ran her hands down her arms a few times. Right, you needn't worry about me ever coming back to barter with the voodoo twins. I never want to use that death trap again. If I need another sample, I'll just send you. Me? said Draco. Not a bloody chance. One of them wanted to sip my brain out of my skull. Or didn't you hear that part? She'd need a rather thick straw, mused Granger. Funny. You could land headfirst on your way down next time. Make a bit of milkshake for her. Draco stared at Granger. Perhaps it was healer humor? But she could be grisly when she worked off her adrenaline. Maybe it was a good thing she didn't play Quidditch. Then again, pondered Draco, she might make an exceptional beater. No bludgers needed. Danger Granger could collapse psyches with a few syllables. They passed through the gift shop. Eunice gave Draco a lovelorn look and threw the car park back to Granger's mini. Is there anything I can say that will make you go away? said Granger. No, said Draco. What if I ask nicely? No. I'm not going to interact with anything dark, or anyone at all. It doesn't even have to be anything to do with my project. Draco studied her. She looked genuinely crestfallen that he was going to ruin a third activity on today's list. He decided to be charitable. Tell me what it is, and I'll decide if it's dangerous or not. Perhaps I'll wait in the car. Granger checked her muggle pocket device. Apparently it gave the time, amongst other things. Damn it, they're closing in an hour. Get in, I'll tell you on the way. They got in without mishap, Draco having now developed an expertise in opening muggle car doors. One thing before we go, Miss Dab Hand at Extension Charms, said Draco. Extend this foot wall before I behead myself with my own knees. As it turned out, Granger's moment of pure self-indulgence, her terrible indiscretion, her vice, visiting a library. A library, repeated Draco. Yes, at Tinsfield. Draco wanted to scream with laughter, but felt that would be unprofessional. He settled for gasping out, The decadence! I wish you'd go away, said Granger with cutting sincerity. The absolute sin of it all, said Draco. 
Please apparate home to your mother. A library? I shall have to report it. As you can see, I am quite safe here. The only remotely bad things are your attempts at humor. What other naughty habits have you got? Church going? Baking? It's a remarkable library. Of course, it must be. And I don't know when I'll be back to Somerset. Yes. It's one of the largest libraries owned by the National Trust. Mmm. The estate also has a beautiful orangery, a rare surviving sample from the late Victorian period. A thrill to be sure. All of these things I wish to enjoy without you. Draco spotted the clenched jaw that signaled Granger's searching for a breaking point. Either a jinx or a painfully incisive remark was forthcoming. He backed off. Fine. You can visit your blessed Titsfield. Tensfield. And I shall wait in the car. I can sincerely say I haven't the slightest desire to join you. The rest of his sentence was overpowered by a sudden wail. Draco swore. Sodding sneakoscope. Granger took her eyes off the road to give him a look of absolute surprise. It's malfunctioning, clearly, said Draco. Clearly, repeated Granger somberly. Draco gave the glove box a harrowing glare. Hoisted by your own petard, said Granger. Of all her previous annoyance had dissipated, she was mostly definitely holding back a grin. The wail faded. I'm going to throw that blasted thing out of the window, said Draco. Don't. I've grown rather fond of it. Thanks to some rather zippy driving on Granger's part, speed limits? A suggestion, really. As the sneakoscope sang, they made it to Tensfield half an hour before closing. Granger was able to partake in the library and the orangery, and Draco enjoyed a poppy seed cake from the cafe, and they watched the sunset together and only quarreled four times.